Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Cows, Justice, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Today's date, Thursday, January 29th, 2015. So I have been told once again, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Uh, for our program today, uh, if our guest, if you are with us, uh, you're dialing in, if you're with us, if you could press star six uh, on your line and then the number one, I'd be able to distinguish uh, which line you're on. That way I can go ahead and bring you on the program. We can get ready for our broadcast. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Our guest for today, I first uh, saw some of her writings uh, back uh, right at the close of 2014. Uh, there was so much activity around uh, the non-indictment uh, for the choking death of Eric Garner and Tamir Rice, uh, the situation in Ferguson. Obviously, there had been just so many things that were happening. Uh, I've said consistently, you know, I try to check different newspapers and I saw several of her posts uh, about the importance of talking about racism specifically uh she had a post that was talking about the importance of white parents talking to their white children about racism uh and i thought it would be grand to have her on the program uh she has uh a bunch <laughs> of different reports on the new york times website they have a section it is called motherload uh where they have lots of different reports that uh all focus uh, on different issues that come up uh, for parents uh, and the splendor adventures of trying to uh, raise children. Uh, but you can check it out. Uh, she is our guest, uh, the lead writer and editor uh, for the Motherload Parenting blog. Uh, again, you can just check it out. Uh, her specific section is linked in the description to the program. So you can go back uh, over the many years that she's been doing this work and check out uh, some of her material. I've also linked uh, quite a few of the different reports that we will be discussing this evening. Real pleasure to have her on the program and looking forward to the exchange. Our guest, Miss KJ Delantonia. Uh, Miss Delantonia, are you with us? I am. Nice to speak to you. Outstanding. Glad to have you on the program. Uh, for our listeners, I'm sure some of the folks, this is their first time hearing from you. Uh, just any information you think would be helpful for listeners to know about who you are before we get started? Well, sure. My name is KJ Delantonia, and I write and edit the Motherload blog with the New York Times. Um, covers all sections, everything to do with family from policy to politics to just the, the fun and interesting stuff. Some of it is written by me, and we also take um, guest contributions as well. Uh, again, folks can check it out. should be linked if you're listening uh, via Black Talk Radio Network. You'll see the link. You can check out her page and go through uh, her beefy, robust archive of information. <laughs> um, for people who haven't seen your photograph, you are a white woman. Is that correct? Outstanding. Uh, this program, uh, we think, very important to discuss racism. Uh, definitions, words are very important. Uh, the definition that I use for both racism and white supremacy 
is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists and do you think that's an accurate definition? Sorry, I think I think I might have lost you as you tailed off. Do I think such a system exists? Yes, ma'am. And do you think that definition is accurate? Oh, um, I guess I certainly think that there is a racism at work in the planet and in the country. Whether it's quite that organized, um, you know, that hasn't been my experience, but obviously we're going to have different experiences, and I think that's kind of why we're talking, right? Oh, for sure. Definitely. I appreciate a different uh, opinion on things. Um, just in terms of being organized, I, I also think it's important. You're a former prosecuting attorney. Is that accurate? Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll uh, get that up. Um, you do use the term racism in your writing. What definition do you use for the term racism? Um, I think racism is judging... Um, well, you know, I, I would definitely use it. I, I would say that racism in the context that we're talking about here, what I've, what I've been writing about is using, it tends to be white people using race to judge others. And race is such a tough one. I've got, I've got a reader in particular who always gets very upset with me. He doesn't like the way that we define um, race. He's got all kinds of um, arguments about whether or not it's it has you know I, I should say skin color he says so if you want I can say skin, skin color um, you know <laughs> I think we know what it means I think it's kind of that um, the porn definition you certainly know it when you see it I hope that I know it when I see it sometimes I question whether I know it when I see it that's one of the things that I I'm always interested in talking and writing about because obviously I come at this as a you know as a a member of what is at least for the moment, yeah, I don't know, are we majority? That's um, not really the right word anymore. But I definitely come at it as a white person. Hmm. Okay. Um, for, for someone who is a former prosecuting attorney, I know you appreciate the power of terms and definitions and having clear specific definitions that, uh, that particularly the portion where you said we all know what racism is. Uh, I just I find that to be uh, massively problematic because so many different. I think people, you're probably uh, right. The minute I said it, I kind of wished I hadn't. Mm. <laughs> um, but I do want to point out because at the beginning you did say I thought it was very important. You said racism generally, and I appreciate the lack of comfort you did. You've written several times that in having these discussions, you're probably not having a good dialogue if you are still comfortable. If you're having a good, honest discussion it should make you a little bit uncomfortable so i hope you know you will permit yourself to be a little uncomfortable today um, i i will i'm okay. i'm here i'm right, game right on you said at the top though you said that uh racism generally it is white people uh using race to to judge uh other individuals and just in terms of clarification because i think to really, I mean, to get at the root of what we're talking about and, and some of the different posts that I want to get to that you've written, uh, it's it's not just white people judging, it's 
white people mistreating, as I said in my definition, individuals that okay. they classify as not white. I mean, is that accurate? I don't want, you know, do you think that's accurate? Hmm. Mistreating as opposed to judging. No, no. I would say that I would still call it racism, even if I was just making a decision or a conclusion about you based on your skin color, even if I did not take any actions. Okay, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that, but the, the core aspect of why, in my view, racism is a problem, it's not just that white people do a lot of judging of other individuals that they oh, classify as well, not yeah. white, it's that there's a lot of mistreatment, and that's really the foundation. No, if, if it was all just silent censure, I think that'd probably definitely be an improvement. Okay, okay. Uh, and I also think it's important, uh, in my opinion, uh, white people, we're talking about power, that white people are able to do this, as you say, judging and mistreating because they collectively have more power than non-white people. Do you think that's accurate? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's been my experience that people tend to uh, be a bit organized when they have a lot of power. It tends to be systemic, but folks can think about that as we roll. Uh, I wanted to start off, um, you have referenced uh, Mr. Charles Blow uh, in some of your different uh, articles where you talked about racism uh, at the New York Times. Uh, I think a lot of folks hopefully uh, heard about the incident that happened. Uh, Charles Blow, he's a black male. Uh, he's an author. He writes for the New York Times as well, uh, where his son uh, is a student at Yale, Ivy League school, Northeast. Yep. Uh, he was stopped at gunpoint this past weekend. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Blow tweeted about it over the weekend, and then he wrote about it uh, on Monday. Uh, at least it was online on Monday, uh, this experience and all the, the thoughts and what have you that he had. I wanted to read two responses that were submitted to the New York Times. Uh, these are both from white writers uh, and to get your feedback, what you think about what they've shared. Uh, so the first person they wrote uh, in and this is all under the, the title, the Yale student. And the policeman. These are different letters to the editor all about what Mr. Blow shared. These are commenters under his column, right? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Well, actually, these are letters to the editor that are all addressing the article he wrote before. So they just oh, okay. published a bunch of them. So the first I one, uh, in 1976, shortly after I arrived at Yale as a junior faculty member, my wife and I were held by the police at gunpoint, splayed out against a car because we resembled the description of a white couple who had just committed a robbery in the vicinity. We remember we remained there terrified for some minutes until the police received a radio communication that the actual robbers had been apprehended. We never received an apology. While almost 40 years later, we remember that experience vividly. We are still appreciative of police efforts to keep our communities safe and know that as long as our gun laws allow criminals to have guns, the police must draw theirs. This is from Daniel Albert. Uh, in Venice, Florida. And the second one, it reads, my heart goes out to all the parents of children stopped by law enforcement officers in the pursuit of their duties. It can be terribly frightening. I have given the same advice to my own son about how to behave if stopped by the police. It's just common sense. Almost 50 years ago, the car I was in was stopped by the police. The driver and I were instructed to get out of the car, hands up, were given no explanation and weren't asked for ID. I was terrified and confused. Finally, after being told that we resembled suspects in a robbery, we were released. Although no guns were drawn, I am certain that they would have been if it had happened today in this age of an armed 
citizenry for officer safety reasons. By the way, I am a white woman and my son is white. Sometimes it is not about race and gender, but only officer safety. Uh, This is from Jesse Allen in New Mexico. What are your thoughts from these two white folks who wrote in? Wow, they just really hit the mother load of people who were stopped by the police 50 years ago, didn't they? Um, What are my thoughts? Well, you know, that's such a common reaction to these stories for people to say, well, it's not always about race, and don't make it about race. And, you know, I I think that, you know, that I disagree. I think that it it is about race. I think that what happened to Charles Blow's son, um, and I should say that I I don't know him personally, I... I, (laughs) That's about race. When you look at the sheer numbers of this and the number of people that are stopped by, by police when they're you know, not doing anything or they're resembling someone who might have done something or they're somewhere that they're out of place and they're out of time, it's about race. I find that to be a, um, a, a frustrating argument that is sort of constantly made by a certain generation of person than a certain just there there are people that make that argument they love it i don't i don't make it i don't agree with it mm. would you be talking about white people oh yeah there's definitely white people but not all white people but you know there's definitely a, a group of people that feel that way it's not about race they say it happens to everyone and you know sometimes when i hear a story like that i think well okay they're trying to identify but I don't, you know, neither of those really sort of came out that way, did they? <laughs> I appreciate your response. I was eager. Um, one more piece I want to get your response on that you didn't write, and then the rest of the program will be focusing on things you wrote. Um, this is That's from okay. uh, Tanahasi Coates. Uh, he got a lot of attention last year for his piece on reparations in the Atlantic. Uh, yes, written, that was a great piece. Uh, he's written a lot of other pieces, mostly about racism. Uh, since that time, one that he wrote in December, uh, he was talking about the New Republic uh, and saying basically they had a history of racism uh, at the magazine from not hiring uh, non-white journalists to the topics that they covered and uh, having glowing praise for the bell curve, which basically says that, you know, black people are idiots. Um, so he wrote this piece and he says, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough. And I just wanted the first portion of uh, the sentence where he says, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. You are a white woman. I assume you're around a lot of white people. Do you think that's accurate? Hmm. I think the whole thing is accurate. Just the first part. Sincerely and greatly pained but we you know, don't experience it and are, for the most part, not pained enough. I would agree with the way he put that. The first part, before we get to the not pained enough, do you think that's accurate? Before we get to the first, sure. Yes, I would agree. Okay. Not, not all white people, but some white people. Do you think a large number, do you think most white people are greatly and sincerely pained by racism? Hmm. Most, I don't think I'd go that far, but I'm sure that there are social scientists out there working on that number right now. Mm. Okay. Are you greatly pained and sincerely pained about racism? I am, but again, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't own that. All I can do 
is be as angry and frustrated as I can be. I, I, it's not my experience, and I can't and, and won't pretend that I understand it. Hmm. How, do you, how do you demonstrate that you are sincerely and greatly pained about racism? Um, well, as you know, I definitely write about it. I do talk about it within my, my uh, family and among my friends. I work to you know, broaden and diversify my personal, I guess, um, field of friendship. I, you know, truly, I live in a very white part of the country. Where specifically, if we may ask, where where specifically? I live in New Hampshire. New Hampshire, okay. I I don't know what our numbers are, but you know, I live in a very in a rural town in New Hampshire. It's very white. Wow. I you know I regret that for my kids. We talk about it all the time. Um, when I talk to my kids about getting stopped by police, I'm honest. I say it's probably not going to happen to you. It's probably going to happen to this friend and to that friend and to that friend. You know, I try to. I. I I try to listen, I try to read, I try to understand, I try to expose. Um, that's what I try to do. Hmm. Okay. For folks keeping track, that is the fifth guest that we've asked that question. Uh, we have two who think that that is not an accurate statement uh, and three who think that that is an accurate statement. Interestingly enough, all of the white women we've asked, they all think that that's an accurate statement. All of the people who think that statement is true are all white women. Interesting. Uh, Wait, what did we think is true? Uh, Mr. Oh, that, I, that we feel that way. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Mr. Coates' statement. Uh, maybe there's something there. I think um, there could you know, be. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a gender thing there. Maybe we feel like we can go a little closer. But I don't know. Just a thought. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm still pondering. <laughs> I'm waiting to, I'm excited to ask more guests as we continue um, moving to some of, of your writing, uh, the piece that you authored, Trayvon Martin, and the talk black parents have with their teenage sons, you wrote, I'm the very whitest of white girls, and it's not right for me to write that. That's not my story. And talking about explaining what the talk entails uh, for black parents having to talk to their black children. What did you mean specifically by I am the very whitest of white girls? Um... I basically meant that I don't want to pretend to an experience that I don't have. There's no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm ethnically Italian. That's never been, as far as I know, a, a problem for me. I, as far as I know, I've never faced any racism for it. Um, it would be racism anyway, but, you know. Um, so I really just meant I really, really, really am not pretending that this is a part of my experience. I hate, uh, that's something that I find, um, that I tend to find frustrating is when people sort of want to take on, on too much of a role that's just not theirs. It's like a, it's like a man saying, well, I completely understand how it felt when, you know, the, the office expected you to make the coffee at that meeting, even though you are the accountant. Uh, no, no, you don't. Sorry. And similarly, I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. What is it specific about? I know about it, you know, and I can think about it, but I, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to understand it. Right. What specifically is it, though, about 
being a white girl, like what are specific things that you know are unique to individuals that are white that you can say, yeah, I am the whitest of white girls. Like what specific things do you do or things that you uh, policies or concepts that you believe in or support as a result of being the whitest of white girls? I don't think believe in or support is the right word, but certainly I can um, go in a bookstore with a backpack, maybe even if they have a sign that says no backpack, so nobody's going to question me. Some of that probably has to do with being old, too. Um, You know, I can do that. I can drive my car anywhere that I want without being pulled over and stopped for no apparent reason. I've got all those privileges. I can expect my... I can expect my son, were he fortunate enough to get into Yale, and I, <laughs> I don't, yeah, that, I, that Yale's not, a, I, I certainly, that, that was not my place. But, you know, if I were wandering around Yale's campus, no one would stop me at gunpoint. Really, right. they really, they just wouldn't. I got those Even if I looked week. like a robber yeah. from the robbery down the street, I still don't think the cops would stop me at gunpoint. I got the the privilege aspect, and that's something that's very common, uh, even though I don't think that's very helpful in discussions on racism, because as I was pointing out in the definitions, uh, a core aspect of racism is about mistreatment. So are there any times either where you know that you practiced racism, where you mistreated someone uh, because they were not white or a time, even if you didn't think you were doing anything incorrect, where someone accused you of practicing racism? Um. Well, that last one hasn't come up for me. You've never been accused of practicing racism? No. Oh, you know, um, I definitely. When I wrote that bo- that blog piece about, I don't think it was, this, um, it was being accused of being practiced racism, but people did ask me, well, why didn't you find a, a black person to write it then? And, you know, some of that has to do with budget, and some of it had to do with my discomfort with, you know, emailing my black friends and saying, hey, I can't write this because I'm not black, can you? <clears throat> that feels, that, that didn't feel right, too. I didn't know how to handle it. Um, it's been a couple of years since I did that, and I think at this point I probably would email people and say, yeah, this really, I feel... Um, stupid about putting this off on you, but would you have any interest? And I also have a budget now, which I didn't have then. Oh, okay. What, what is, what is your, but, budget? A, but that's a good example. Okay. What's your, what's your budget? What's the, the compensation? I can't answer that. Hmm. You can't give us I mean, what I mean is that I can pay, we, you know, I can pay um, writers, oh, other okay. writers besides me. Okay. That's what I meant. What is, what is your compensation for writing these posts for the times then? I, I'm not going to answer that, but it's not very much. But obviously, I am a, I'm a paid full-time contractor with the Times. Okay. And how long have you been doing this? Four years. Four years. Okay. Um, in the post that you wrote, Talking Truth, Trials, and Trayvon with Children, uh, you wrote, uh, talking uh, with your children, uh, we talked in the past about Mr. Trayvon Martin uh, and about the assumptions people make about young black men and the way that my son, a white kid in a largely white New England town, had already seen those assumptions play out on a much smaller scale at a number of sports events when there was only one black child on the team, though he might not have realized it at the time. Like, can we get the details of how what he's seen play out on a smaller scale? Um, 
somewhat carefully because identities get really obvious really quickly around here, and it's not fair for me to tell other parents' children's stories. Um, we've certainly had the experience of having one child in our family be on a team where there's only one, um, one other, well, one black child, and having uh, referees maybe come down more harshly on that child. And yeah, I can't, I'm going to get, it's going to get too obvious who I'm talking about if anyone that would know any of these families is around here. That's just, that's, that's where we live. So, you know, he's, he's seen that. He's seen um, uh, pool lifeguards. I, he, he probably doesn't know, again, but I know, and those parents know, and we've talked about it. You know, we know that that's what happened. That's, that that's what's happening. Hmm. Have you ever spoken up in any of these situations at the pool or at these sporting events where you saw this and, and this is what you thought could have been happening? Did you ever speak up to try to intervene and go talk to the official or the lifeguard or whomever and say, hey, it looks like you might not be treating that black child or non-white child correctly? Have you ever I have that? talked to the parents. I have not talked to the referee or the lifeguard. How come? Um, in that case, the parents, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Hmm. That, and I, I, I don't think the parent wanted it, but on the other hand, I didn't actually say, do you want me to go say something? So I wish I had. Hmm. I, uh, Next time. In my view, I, I mean, racism is a crime. Uh, I view it the same way that I view arson, bank robbing, uh, any other crime folks can think of, sexual assault. Uh, it is the equivalent. Uh, and I think because I think this happens a lot. And in my view, this is another way that white people practice racism. I have concluded that white people observe other white folks practicing racism all the time and they don't say anything uh, if they're not in agreement. If even if they do look at this and say, oh, man, this is wrong. They do not intervene. And I have concluded just like any other crime, if it's happening and you're benefiting from that crime and you don't say anything, you don't go to the authority, authorities to stop this, you are also culpable. Uh, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in that example, you not intervening, would that be direct, indirect, an act of I racism? I do wish, now that you mention it, I do wish that I had said something. Okay. But would that be an act of racism on your part by omission, you not doing the correct thing and speaking up and saying, hey, I think this child might be being mistreated and let's make sure we address this? I do. I, I do wish I'd said something. But is that an act of racism? If you don't agree, that's fine. But I just, you know, I th do you think that's an act of racism on your part? I had I had never thought of it that way. And I, I would sort of going to have to think about that further. Okay. Nobody likes thinking of themselves in that way, but I am trying to be as harsh on myself as I would be on someone else. So I'll have to think about it. Okay. Uh, you said, uh, this is from the same report, Talking Truth, Trials and Trayvon with Children. Every single one of us needs to be a part of the conversation about what happened to Trayvon Martin and why, and without any sense of delicacy and remove that made me hesitate to write about the talk. There is nothing delicate about acknowledging that overt and subconscious racism affects us all and that many of us, depending on where we are and where we live, have even come to expect it. That seems to tie very well with what we just discussed. It uh, does. You, 
you continue with the same piece. Uh, what can, or excuse me, I guess my, my question uh, that I would ask based on all of this, uh, you also write about um, the importance of talking about racism, not only with white children, but with black children. I have the same question. I want to ask it for both sets of children. So what exactly do you think will be the result if white parents don't talk to their white offspring about racism, if they fail to have that conversation? Oh, if you fail to have that conversation, then your kids just draw their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. I mean, there actually is social science research on this, and it's, it's wide, and it's deep. And if you don't talk to your kids about racism and uh, differences in the way people are treated because of their skin color, then they don't think to themselves, oh, then everyone must be the same. They think to themselves, oh, I observe people being treated differently. That must be something that I am not allowed to talk about. Or worse, that must be right. That must so be. That's, I mean, that, to me, that's, that's what, to me, that does seem to be what happens. When you say that must be right. I hope they grow up and they think about it and they talk about it further. But no, we got to talk about this. Hmm. When you say that, now, let me tell you, though, it is a lot easier to write. Let us not do this delicately than it is to actually put words to you know, put things into words and say sentences and look at another person mm. and say what you have observed or what you see happening. It is hard to talk about. Or at least I find it very hard to talk about. Hmm. Why is it why why is it that you think and you write you've written about that where you said that white people have a difficult time talking about racism? Why do you think that is? We're so afraid we will say the wrong thing. Um, even talking to our own kids, you're afraid. At least I am. Even talking to my own kids, I'm afraid that I will inadvertently say something that is racist or say the wrong thing that tells them that the racism that I'm talking about is normal or that. Um, you know, I will say something to them and they will go home with a friend who is black and they will say it to that person's mother and it will have been wrong and I will be, you know, uh, tagged as wrong. Um, I did. So in the, so in the course of like the last, I would say I've written about this a lot more in the last, well, God, who hasn't written about this? a lot more in the last six months, but I've written about this a lot more in the last six months, and in the course of that, at some point, I'm at a soccer game um, with one of my kids, and there's one black kid on the team, and his mother is white, and she says something to me. She's trying to describe her kid to me, so she's like, well, he's the taller one. He's on the other side. What is and I really, I just happen to have just been interviewing someone for one of the articles that you're quoting, and the person said, you know, one thing that really annoys black people is that white people don't want to use the word black. You know, they won't use it as a descriptor, and, and it, it's just a word, right? So I said very helpfully, do you mean he's the black one? Okay, that was wrong. Let me tell you how many heads turn. Okay, so that was really, yeah, I'm probably still known for having said that at that moment. And and he he just was, right? I, anyway, so, you know, you're going to get it wrong. That's the answer to that. I'm going to get it wrong. At some point, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm either going to get it wrong in the eyes of, uh, or at least that's my fear. And that's one of the things that makes it so hard to talk about. Mm. You know, I'm going to put myself out there to have this conversation with you, and I'm going to feel bad at the end of it. But that's okay. I, you know, 
I'm doing it. What would so be anyway, incorrect? that's one of the things that makes it hard. We're going to get it wrong. That's okay. what makes it well, hard. What, what would be uh, incorrect if, you know, we do have racial classifications. It's on the census. You go to get jobs or fill out college applications and employment forms all over the place. If you go to join the armed services uh, frequently, they have uh, even on the census, they have a section for racial classifications where they ask you to identify yeah. as black or white or whatever the case may be. Why it, would it be incorrect to say, oh, this is the black child? Like who, you know, who would be upset about that and what would be incorrect about I, yeah, it? Yeah, just the number of heads that swiveled. And again, maybe that's because you know, I, it's a very white town and people were afraid that you said the wrong thing. Anyway, it was a really super awkward moment that it, it had, you know, sort of apropos of nothing. She was just trying to tell me which kid was hers. Um, anyway, mm. it was... Uh, it just struck me as a really good example of a moment when I, you know, I really felt like I had said something wrong and I hadn't really said anything at all. Hmm. You, in the same piece, talking about racism with white kids, you write that I also grew up in a time and place in which racial judgments were more common than their absent. Could I explain why police officers and just regular police might act in a racist way without having conscious racist intent, without defending those actions? That's a question. What are some of these quote unquote racial judgments that were more common uh, when you were growing up? I grew up in Texas in the seventies. So, and, and with a grandmother who would, um, you know, (laughs) My grandmother was definitively just, you know, racist in her casual conversation. She and I was like nigger you know, or six or seven, and I, what did I know? When you say she was casual, like would she say nigger in her regular conversation? Yep. Oh, okay, would she? Oh, yeah. She would make. Yeah, other- yeah, and then she, when she became aware that that was wrong, she would say, "Oh, the colored folk." <laughs> wow! Wow! Were you? Did you hear racist jokes uh, growing up from family? Dead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I am sure that I did. I couldn't, you know, if you said, quote me one, I, I, I got nothing, but, um, you know, it was, it was Texas and it was Kansas and absolutely. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. But that, the thing with the cops, that was like a specific thing where I was, that, that's a really, that was an interesting like, I remember as I was writing that, that the conversation, so I'm, I'm, we're actually, I'm talking to my kids and we're listening to this, um, this American Life in which a cop just behaves abominably on the subway to a group of kids. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. So we've segued off into that and now we're on to a cop stopping someone for the wrong reason. And the thing that I almost said, the thing that I am so glad that I didn't say was to say, well, statistically, young black men commit more crimes, so maybe that's why he was more ready to stop them. Mm-hmm. And I sort of had that on the tip of my tongue, and that was the thing that I was like, no, no, wait, that is the racist judgment. That is the racist excuse for this. That, that the, 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 the history and the background and everything else that goes into that supposed statistic, which, you know, as you know better than I do, is 
is just, you know, not really, not what you would call a pure statistic. It's not, you know, I'm sorry, guys, but really, I'm on the phone. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was so, I, when I found myself about to say that and stop myself, that was maybe the most moment when I have most felt myself to be having a racist reaction or a racist thought, and I was so glad that I didn't say it. And I wrote that in a variety of, like, I probably, I must have written that paragraph six or seven or 12 times, and then I just couldn't. I mean, that's, you know, to have even said it right now, it's, I, I, I don't like that I had thought it. That was the thought that I was ashamed of, that I didn't want to have had. At least I kept it in. Um, mm. But anyway, that was, that was the tough, that was one of those things that like could so easily have come out wrong. Mm. <laughs> come out racist. Um, yeah. I wanted to uh, make sure I got this in as well. And that's you, unquestionably you... like what my father would say under those circumstances. Oh. That was right to uh, you know, my next or question. What, what, what did your parents, that's what what they did your, would uh, say. What did your parents so. teach you about racism? Since you said that's what your, your father would have said. You told us about your grandparents, but what did your parents teach you about racism? Were they racist as well? My parents are not dead. Okay. <laughs> so we're not going there. <laughs> what did they teach you about racism? I uh, Yeah, uh, I'm not going there. Wow, okay. That... I, well, that would be too. Then I'll just let you know that not sharing that sort of information just about what they talk to you about racism, I view that as another act of racism because it's, it's going back to the criminal analogy. We're keeping secrets about people that are practicing racism, which is a crime. It's the same thing. That's a level of culpability. So that, for me, is another act of racism. Uh, I suspect uh, you also said. Are you keeping a little tag list? I'm just pointing these out for I'm folks that are listening in. I'm pointing these out for folks that are listening in. Uh, what do you tell yes. your children? Uh, about racism, you talk about some of the talks in your article. What what sort of concrete things do you use to explain racism to them? Ah, oh, concrete things. Um, well, that This American Life episode was extraordinarily helpful. It hadn't even, I think, occurred to them. Um, the, the the part where the cop is swearing at the kid and then trying to arrest him for talking back. That was. Um, so that was a really good, concrete example. I've certainly used the example of Trayvon Martin. Um, I have talked with my. Actually, we we all we we all um, it is a terrible, but I am yeah. Anyway, we we've, we've all talked about some of the more recent events. I talked to my 13-year-old about Tamir Rice. I don't think I talked to the younger kids because they weren't. I think they just weren't with us when we were having that conversation. Um, my 13-year-old, when, when Tamara Rice was shot, when I first heard the story on NPR, they just said, you know, a police officer shot and killed a 13-year-old in a park with a gun. And it was, I think, a weekend day and we're driving and, and they stop and they move on to some other story. And I said, they didn't tell us what color he was. They didn't tell us what race he was. And my son said, what difference does it make? And I said, it makes a huge difference. And I can tell you what race he was. Um, or at least I, I would be willing to make you a bet. You know, he was black, and it's going to be a big deal. And it wasn't. It wasn't as big a deal as it should have been. That, to me, is um, that's a continuing crime to me, that we're not talking more about Tamira as well as about the other 
victims of of um, police violence at the moment. I'm still frustrated by that. That would not have happened to him if he weren't black, and I, I, I don't even see how we can not be having that conversation. But anyway, so that was a concrete example that I have used. I haven't, there aren't that many examples from their sort of immediate surroundings. Uh, there just haven't been. Hmm. What What would your response be? Um, there are a lot of folks who listen to the program because I, I think I posted your article about uh, why it's important for white parents to talk to their white children about racism. Um, and a lot of our listeners um, concluded, hey, the problem is not that white people don't talk to their children about racism, uh, that a lot of what has been happening down through the years and what continues to happening is what you mentioned about your grandmother uh, and some of the other white people that you grew up around, that they are racist. And that's what they're talking to their children about. Uh, not that this conversation isn't happening, but it is happening and that these white children are just being trained, taught about how to be the next generation of racist man racist woman, uh, not that this conversation isn't happening. Uh, what would your response to that be? It's not the conversation that I'm having, but I think you're probably right. That conversation is probably, well, I don't think that's a conversation. I'm sure you don't just line the child up and say, let me talk to you. No, that's more, that's more of the constant hearing and being surrounded by racism that leads you to draw your own racist conclusions. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that that's I'm sure that that's happening. Oh, okay, we've had uh, some white guests on the program before who've admitted that that that's what's happening in their home. <laughs> Not talking really? to them about yes, uh, we've had folks uh, on the program who you know been very upfront, uh, which I have no problem with. But uh, they even said uh, I can get folks from uh, the Caucasian persuasion, where he said he had talked to uh, his children as as young as at six. He would take them out to the play- playground and show them black children and white children, and already get them in line with how they're supposed to think of black people uh, at six years of age, which, you know, it's not a surprise to me. I'm just glad we got it archived. But uh, given what you said you about uh, most white people, you said you don't think large numbers of white people are greatly pained or, or sincere uh, in terms of the way that they think about racism uh, and that, you know, probably in most homes, this is not happening in terms of talking about racism. With that said, um, what are your thoughts then on white people adopting non-white children? Hmm. You know, I, you probably don't know, but one of my children is adopted. Oh, I do know. Age. Chinese, is that correct? Yes. You've written about it. I knew that. <laughs> I was going to ask. Oh, okay. You're very thorough in your race, in your research then. Um, what are my thoughts? Generally, what my thought about adoption is that, you know, uh, you can have a very happy family, but you shouldn't ever lose sight of the tragedy that lies at the root of it, which is that somebody couldn't stay with their birth family, which is where kids belong. Hmm. That still didn't really get to the question about white people adopting non-white children. Um... Well, I, yeah, I, I guess I don't even, I mean, it, I don't really have, I'm having a hard time answering that because they're sort of, the personal answer that has to do with my family and the larger question of better ways to handle this 
um, as a society. And the fact that I might feel differently about those two things, but the way that what I might say might reflect to my future teenagers, it's, uh, it's making me have a hard time answering it. Hmm. If you can divorce your personal situation and just give us general thoughts is, uh, and just leaving out, you know, yes, I do have an adopted child, so this might not necessarily be how it operates in my personal life, but my view from <laughs> what I am observing as the whitest of white girl and what it means to be white, what would your response be? You know, one thing that I observe is that I get a lot more, like if, if, um, if you were to look at my submissions, the people that write essays about parenting that want to talk about parenting, I get a lot more things from white adoptive parents of non-white adopted children than I do from non-white adoptive parents of any children, or really, for that matter, than I do from non-white parents at all. And that is strange to me. I don't understand why we're not all writing about it, if we're going to write it about it at all. That would be one sort of disjointed thought. Um, yeah. Was racism a part of the process when you went to adopt your own child? Did, were there any conversation at the adoption agency about racism? And, you know, are you going to be prepared? Absolutely. To oh, okay. What, what did yeah. those conversations Oh, yeah. Sound? No, they definitely said, well, how do you think that your child will feel, you know, being the only non, um, being the only non-white person in the family? How do you think all this blonde hair will affect an adoptive. This is before it was a specific child, you understand? Mm. This is when it was just abstract. Yes, absolutely. The social worker came and asked all of, at least they asked all the right questions. I, and I assume that's a part of it for everyone, but I, I couldn't really answer. I don't know. Did they have any uh, like courses on what they call cultural competency or other things uh, since you're going to be adopting your white family in a, a super white town, adopting a non-white they, child? They do. They give it sort of more lip service than actual experience, but there was one, we went and we sort of went for a whole day's worth of panels, and there was one um, really great panel in which kids who had been adopted into non-white families got up and talked about how they had felt about it, and it was not all great, and it was not all, uh, you know, uh, rainbows coming out of unicorn butts, and I thought that was fantastic. Um, I really appreciated that. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, you, I wanted to make sure that I got, oh, well, for number one, for your, your adopt non-white adopted child, uh, has she ever expressed any concerns about racism being mistreated or anything that would make you think? We're gonna... No, but she's not very old. Oh, okay. Is she like, I mean, are we talking under six or where, where is she at? Um, oh, well, she's, she's nine, but she's young for her age. Okay. Okay fascinating that will be interesting as she gets older um it will be it will be and i hope that we have the guts to address it directly i read a lot of stories about people who say not only did my parents not understand but they never even brought it up um i hope that that's not us it's, hmm. it, it sort of plays back into that whole thing that you were talking about about why white people are uncomfortable talking about it. They want, you know, people want to believe that it won't exist if you don't talk about it. Or maybe if you don't draw the child's attention to it, they won't notice. Um, and I know intellectually that that is complete, um, complete words that I'm not allowed to use at the New York Times. But to, to own it and, and to speak it and to, to live it, that's going to be a different question. Hmm. 
you uh, you wrote about uh, this piece is about the nine year old in Arizona that shot and killed uh, the gun instructor in 2014. Uh, the piece is called mm-hmm. American Kids yeah. Learning to Aim and Fire. Uh, you wrote yep. a nine year old in Arizona fatally shot her instructor while learning to use an Uzi submachine gun at the Bullets and Burgers firing range on Monday. She was on vacation with her family. An eight-year-old shot and killed himself while learning to use an Uzi at a gun show in 2008. In between those fatalities, thousands of children were killed and injured by guns, most not under the controlled conditions of a range. Uh, And I remember that incident. And I just, I I want you, if you can, to compare and contrast from what you saw, because like you said, we have different experiences, so we'll see what your experience is. But if you can compare and contrast that incident with that nine-year-old white girl in Arizona who shot and killed that instructor with Tamir Rice, Jonathan Crawford, uh, these incidents where these are black males with toy guns, and the way that the public responded to those two incidents. Because my experience... Oh, yeah. Oh, well, no, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Because we blame Tamir and we blame the other child. Oh, it was their fault. He's carrying a gun. What did you expect? That looks just like a gun. Probably took the orange tip off. You know, look at, you know, look at the security footage. He, he's clearly, you know, no wonder the police officers felt threatened. I mean, that's the reaction, right? And, you know, for the, for, for the girl at the firing range, it was all sympathy for her. Anyway, not really so much for her parents, I think. Maybe, well, I would imagine that if you were writing for newspapers in other parts of the country, there was plenty of sympathy for her parents doing this perfectly natural thing of taking her child to burgers and bullets, because who wouldn't? <laughs> and anyway, um, no, the, 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 the difference is it's extraordinary, right? And can you even imagine a black family at the burgers and bullets shooting range in, in Nevada? I have a hard time with it. Um, it's, it's, that's not really, um, it's not, the the distinction between guns as fun and guns as, as anything else, um, between black and white people is, uh, pretty, pretty enormous. And I, I should say that I say this as someone who's had, you know, our neighbor taught our kids to fire his 1920s rifle last summer because, this is fine. He he offered, and I let them go down and shoot it. We don't have any guns, but that was, hmm. you know it's something that we've done. You wrote about that uh, as well. I was yeah. I got rained. <laughs> I was I was gonna. Oh, you got you were people upset about you writing about this? Oh yeah, that's downright child abuse. That is really. Mm-hmm. That's what people like the comments people wrote in, or I guess emailed yeah. you or what have you. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's down. Well, people were really, so what I was trying to do, and this was also somewhat in the context of the, it was actually, I think, a few weeks before this Burgers and Bullets incident, right? And I was trying to talk about the huge gulf between people who see guns as entertainment, which is sort of this world that we had, had explored a little bit with our neighbor um, without quite going to Burgers and Bullets length. But the, the gulf between the idea that this is fun, that you're going to shoot, that this is target shooting. You know, we were shooting a, a, a piece of paper in, in, in the backyard. So the idea that this would be fun and yet the, the weirdness that you would even, even remotely consider that fun, it's, it's just, it, it was really hard to get a, it was hard to get a handle on um, in writing. It's hard to get a handle on in just 
in in life and in in understanding. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a gun rights person, which doesn't mean that, mind you, that I want my poor my neighbor to give up his um, childhood rifle. I I maybe I do, but don't tell him that. Anyway. Wow. You... Yeah. That so that was a, an interesting one. Was that? But, but yeah. The difference between how. Those kids were treated as um, to come right off oh, at great length back to your original question. Did uh, it's very it's very telling. Was the photograph with that uh, report the American kids learning to aim and fire? Uh, was that your family in the photograph? At the that is one of my kids. Wow! Wow! Fascinating! Fascinating! Let's, I mean, I wanted to own. I don't you know. <laughs> I, I I don't want to pretend we live in hunting country. Our neighbor offered to show us. We did. It was kind of fun. We haven't done it since. But, you know, we tasted that. We, we sort of we had that experience of, you know, is this fun? What are people talking about? I mean, a, a, a majority of people in our country think of guns as fun and entertaining as opposed to deadly, scary weapons. And what is that? And I don't, I'm not part of that majority, and I sort of wanted to explore it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could say that exploring things that make people uncomfortable is, um, or make, that make me uncomfortable is, um, that would be one of the undercurrents of the blog. You, you, one of the best sentences that I have uh, before I get to the next question, I'll probably repeat it before we go off the air, is uh, you're referencing Miss Zach said something else that struck me. Whenever an armed black man is shot by a police officer and the black community protests, whites in the area buy more guns. (laughs) I uh, highlighted and put that in boldface print. Uh, I'll read that a few more times. Yeah, and that's not me. You know, that is, um, that was a woman in the opinion section. She's she was having a conversation with um, with two professors having a conversation, and they had statistics to back that up that people actually go out and, and buy people. more guns. White people, um, white people, white people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you can't go buy guns, right? Uh, it's probably. Hey, Tamir Rice. I don't want to end up like John Crawford. I, I totally see your mm-hmm. your point. Um, you uh, just as well, a his, former his poor mother. Have you? Did you read the follow up to the? Tamir Rice story in the Times that had the more in-depth story of what had happened that day. I did read how that. he ended up in the park with a gun, and I mean, I just I weep for. I read that, but that report isn't very. And good. the way they were treated. Right, I, I read that report, but in my opinion, that report isn't as good as some of the other reporting that I've seen that goes into more detail about the mm-hmm. gross and, in my opinion, criminal negligence of the uh, Cleveland Police Department and how Officer Loman got there in the first place. They included some of the details about his history, but they that, didn't yeah. give as much as, in my opinion, should be out to the public to really grasp the enormity of how incorrect this is and why it shouldn't be just Officer Loman. It should be the Cleveland Police Department, someone there. We had uh, Dr. Vanilla Randa on the program. She's a law professor. She said, in her view... This is criminal negligence where someone in the Cleveland Police Department should be looking at some maybe some jail time for having him hired in the first place. They didn't include that much info, but I did read that report last Friday. Um, I wanted to get some of the callers really quick as well before you exit. But just a quick question as a as a former prosecutor, what percentage Mm -hmm. of the people that you prosecuted were black? Oh, I I didn't. So this was it was a long time ago. I spent about three and a half, four years 
in the district attorney's office in New York, and I did not, and I, it didn't even occur to me to do the math at the time, and I, uh, that, that probably is racist. Um, it never occurred to me to do that math at the time, but definitely the majority. Not only that, but the majority of the victims were black as well. I spent a small amount of time doing drug crimes. I spent a lot of time doing domestic violence, um, and that is uh, not fun. And I got to the point of doing one homicide before I left. Hmm. Did you see racism manifested in uh, an organized manner in your career as a prosecuting attorney? Yes. Hmm. How so? Um, well, this is more me now knowing statistics and, and having a better understanding of what was going on. But yeah, you, know, you, you can't argue with who is arrested for drugs and who is prosecuted in different ways for drug possession. If you want to just uh, to specifically and narrowly look at the drug laws and their effect on um, black men in particular, you can't, you, you can't even pretend that they're administered equally. The arrests aren't made equally. The prosecuting isn't done equally. The laws aren't applied equally. The sentences aren't done equally. The uh, parole isn't done equally. None of it. None of it. None of it is, is equal. That's, yeah, I would say that, that that's systemic racism. Okay. Uh, the person that dialed in, did you have a quick question? Uh, we don't, she's not going to be with us for the full program, so you just want to try and get a few quick questions in. Uh, the person that, uh, I think this is Thomas in New York, did you have a question for KJ Del Antonio? Is this Thomas in New York, 4300? Do you uh, have a question? Oh, no, 4300 is not Thomas from New York. My apologies. No problem. Good evening to the host, the guest, and the listeners. I don't have so much as a question as I do a comment. Um, the voice, the, the guest sounds eerily familiar. She sounds a lot like um, the Wheat Money's Crystal Tyler, just the delivery and the intonation of her voice. Um, to the guests, I would recommend that you do some research and check out Gus's at, um, archives, specifically September 23rd, 2014. And um, I recommend that show because I think that's a great illustration of what not to sound like when you communicate with black people as a so-called anti-racist. Um, it's kind of like just listening to this dialogue. It sounds like you're placating black folks, and it doesn't really sound like you're being totally genuine and forthcoming. So. That's all I wanted to say. I'll mute my line. Right on. Uh, the caller at 0059-0059, did you have a question for Ms. Delantonia? Yeah, um, how you doing, Gus? This is um, Joe from D.C. Um, how you doing, Gus? Uh, my question is that when you talk to your kids about racism, um, with your choice of words, in, instead of saying play, um, plantation, would you say, slave labor camp. Um, since she was a prosecutor, do you also talk to your kids about when black men are um, sent to jail um, disproportionately? It actually is slave labor, and slavery is still going on today. Do you actually 
bring that up to your kids and your choice of words when you talk about we have privileges. Do you talk about that? We live in an all-white neighborhood because white folks have historically prevented blacks from living in this neighborhood. If too many blacks was to live in our neighborhood, our property value would go down and we would lose money. Do you bring up those type of situations when you talk about racism with your kids? I have never analogized the prisons to slave labor. I could. I hadn't thought about it that way, and I'm learning. I don't know that I would. Maybe I should. You're definitely giving me food for thought. So that's one thing. Um, property values. We have talked about it, not in the context of our property, but again, we live we live in rural New Hampshire, and that's not um, there are definitely reasons that there are not any black people in our town, and we have talked about that, but uh, property values is probably not um, <laughs> i'm sorry I, i'm I'm laughing because there's it's a very mixed income neighborhood so that it, it's kind of funny to me but um we definitely talked about it in the context of your grandparents neighborhood uh the caller at 8562 did you have a quick question for kj delantonia hello good night can I be heard yes ma'am okay uh, good night to all okay i want to ask a guest uh uh have you seen uh american sniper i haven't are you familiar with Chris Kyle? No. Really? I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a movie goer and pop, and I'm not a. Um, I, I don't technically know who different actors are, and I wouldn't see American Sniper because that is clearly going to be hugely depressing. It's going to be. Can you repeat that, please? Hmm. Can you can you repeat what you just said? You didn't see American Sniper because what? It's going to be depressing. Even if I, the last movie I saw was the Lego movie. I have four kids and a full-time job, and I'm not a big movie goer. So, you know, I probably wouldn't choose American Sniper anyway because it will be depressing. So you don't know who Chris Kyle is. That's what you're telling me right now. Chris Kyle? Yes, Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle. No, I don't know who Chris Kyle is. Wow. Okay, moving on. Um... (laughs) You said, you said um, I think I heard that you have a, a non-white child. Is that correct? I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gus asked you a question about your parents being racist, and you whispered and said that they're alive? Yep. Is that correct? Yes. My question to you is, so from you saying that, what I gathered is they are racist. So my question to you is, why would you adopt a non-white child knowing that they're racist in your family? All right, I will deal with the racism in my family issue. Um, man, only with difficulty. I would still prefer not to. Could get me disowned. That would be bad. I would hate to be disowned. Anyway, um, my non-white child is Asian, and my parents, like many white people, would classify that differently than black people. So that's the answer. That's at least a partial answer to your question. So you're saying because he's not black, he's, 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 they're not going to practice racism against him? Is that what you're saying? Yes. 
Oh, okay. Don't, I mean, do you not find that that is true, that um, there are a number of people who are racist only in one direction? And there are probably people who are only racist with regard to Asian people. There are definitely people that are only racist with regard to black people. There are probably people that are only racist with regard to Latino people. Um, you know, all of our blinders are different and sometimes bewilderingly specific. Okay, okay. Um, what was your de definition of racism? Was my definition of racism? Yes. Mm -hmm. Judging other... Uh, I, my definition was judging other people based on their skin color, but I did specify that I'm not talking about black people judging white people. That's, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't play that way. Or if, or, you know, if you want to say that it does because of some semantics, but that's not, that's, when I talk about racism, that's not what I'm talking about. We have to leave it there because um, they're um, uh, Gus, I'm gonna, um, Thank you for letting me ask my questions, Gus. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, this should be Thomas in New York. Did you have a quick question for KJ Delantonio? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus, for taking my call. I'm sorry I couldn't figure out how to use the phone for a second. Um, thanks to the guests for coming on. Um, I had a quick, uh, couple of quick questions for you. Um, um, first, I'd like to say um, I don't think next to black people, there's no one the collective system of white supremacy has abused more than the Asian people. used. So I don't know how safe that kid is. But anyway, um, do you think that it would be logical for black parents such as myself to teach black children, children such as mine that, to suspect all whites of, as being racist? Do I think that would be logical? Yes. Yes, I think that would be oh. logical. Uh, you know, uh, do I wish it wasn't logical? I wish it wasn't logical, but would it be logical? I, I, it would. It would make sense. Okay. Um. You. 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 You wrote a passage about um. Um. Talking to your kids about racism. Am I right? And um, you made a, um, some comments on the show um, that suggested that probably your parents were racist and they talked to you about racism in a way that made um, people, specifically black people, look um, in a negative way. Um, so, um, obviously, do you consider yourself a racist? I don't consider myself a racist, but I am aware that I have thoughts and fast reactions that aren't what I wish they were. For example, do you, are you familiar with that, um, that thing where you're, you're on the internet and they show you pictures of black faces and white faces and they put words like good and bad up above them and it's all about how, how quickly you can click whatever? It's called an innate bias detector. Mm -hmm. I don't do well on that. It's really embarrassing. It's terrible, um, but that's it's it, it, the whole point of it is that it's innate, and what that tells me is that you know the way that I grew up and the things that I I heard growing up have affected me much more than I want them to have. Okay, and you think that by you talking to your children um, in a more I guess putting blacks in a more positive light that will affect the way they see things um, in a in a much different way than the way you do. I, ha I hope so. I have to wonder whether um, your life experiences have as much to do with that as anything else. And 
you know, I, I sometimes I wonder how much control I have over that versus what they're seeing in the media or what they're going to experience as they go out into the world and as they go out into high school. But um, you know, at least at least a the race the the conscious verbal racism isn't going to be coming from me, and b um, I'm going to talk to them about where that comes from and um, what it is, and that they're going to see that. So in the hope that they will recognize it. Okay, in the hopes they would recognize it or be able to and, practice and racism and fight against it, but oh, not, not so not they can practice racism hate. better, uh, more efficiently no, than you probably. Okay. okay, my last question is: um, Is it safe to say um, that people, uh, white people, say this a lot? Um, they're afraid to talk about racism because they're afraid they're going to say something that someone will say is racist. Um, is it safe to say that if you think that you're going to say something racist, you're probably a racist? Mm. No, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Um, and then now I'm not talking about myself, but I think the fear of saying something that will be misjudged, uh, I think that that's real and I think that you could have it whether you're a racist or not. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, the caller at 4942, did you have a question for our guest, Ms. Del Antonio? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Greetings to you, the guest and the caller. Um, I guess my one of my questions is, you said earlier the example you gave about a black child who uh, has a white parent who the sports game that you're at. And you said how you were describing them, like you identified the child, oh, the black one. Um, my question with that in that example is, you said that it's a town of very few black people, and even in that instance, was the black parent present? There wasn't a black parent. No, this is an adoptive child. And I, I should say that I don't know this. I don't know this family at all. It was a, it was just sort of a fleeting. So, so I can't tell you very much about them, but other than that, this is uh, was, you know, I suppose there could be something that I don't know. But having seen, I could see both parents, and I could see the child. My guess is that it is an adoptive family, but I didn't talk to them about it. Okay, um, so then my question would be: In that situation, was there any were there any black people present? I don't think so. I don't specifically remember, but I don't think so. So then my question would be, who would you be afraid of offending with the, the identifying a child as black? Oh, I don't. I wasn't. <laughs> well, I know you said that you didn't think anything was wrong either. with it. Yeah, I know you didn't think anything was wrong with saying, oh, like the black one, I got that. But I'm saying like, in that situation, um, I guess I'll try to I'm trying to disclose the way I'm trying to get to. Um, you kind of assumed that it wouldn't be a problem with identifying that child as black, because you were surrounded by white people. Was well, no, I, I I identified him as black because he was the only black child on the field, and it was the easy and obvious way to identify him. And I had just been having this very this conversation with, um, you know, I'd just been interviewing an expert about how to talk to your kids about racism, and they had specifically been talking to me. You know, we sort of specifically covered that, 
um, the fact that you shouldn't be afraid to use you know, to use the words. We should, you know, if it's a, a black person and that's how you would naturally describe them, that's the most obvious. You know, sort of, but it would be like having someone who was you know, six feet tall among a field of munchkins and trying to identify them by his shirt. They, their point was that it was dumb, like that avoiding the naming the most obvious characteristic was to give it, was to be racist about it. Like, oh, that's the one thing I can't talk about. So here I was trying to enact that. And I mean, I don't want my, ra- I don't want my white neighbors to think I'm racist either. It, it's just really, it went over like, it was just not a good, it was not a good moment. I'm still not entirely sure why not, but it wasn't. I definitely right. felt like I had wrong-footed it. Yeah, I asked that question because a few of the previous white guests in the past have stated that in general, um, I guess white people who overtly practice racism, white supremacy, uh, assume that if you're white, you're cool with it. Like, you practice racism, white supremacy. So that's why I asked that question. But um, my second question was, I noticed when you were discussing, uh, well, when you answered the question that Gus asked about what have you specifically taught your children about racism, and I do apologize, I haven't read your article, um, so I don't know if you you went into more detail in the article. But um, I noticed when you were talking about it just in this conversation, you were saying that you were talking to them about the killings of black children like Tamir Rice and like Trayvon Martin. Um, and you even gave the example of when y'all were in the car listening to NPR and you said, like, oh, I know if that had, I know that's a black child, even though they didn't say it, because it wouldn't have happened if it was a white child. I guess my question is, is, is when you have those conversations with them, do you ever wonder if you might be instilling the um, idea that that's natural, that those things are, that's the way it's supposed to be. Like, if those killings do happen, then naturally it would be with a, to a black child. I do, I do worry about that. I I don't want to, uh, am I cutting you off? I don't want to cut you off. Okay, I, I do worry about that. But interestingly, that's, this is the research that I was talking about earlier um, that really shows that it's better to talk about it and to own it and to say uh, to say directly, you know, and I don't like that I can guess that that was a white child because it probably wouldn't have guessed, happened to a, ba- a black child. And I should add that I was guessing that he was a black child from his name. Um, so it was probably, it was twofold. It wasn't just, and from Cleveland, I mean, like there was a lot in there that, that was telling me that. But anyway, what what the research that I have read and the people that I have talked to say is that it's more important to talk about it directly and then to say, you know, and it's terrible that I can guess that that's a black child because it probably wouldn't happen to a white child. And this is the history that leads up to this. And this is my history that leads up to my knowing that. And um, this is why I'm talking at you like this, although I'm trying to talk to you. Uh, so, you know, I, when I have those conversations, I try to own those things as much as possible because I think it's really important. But I do, you know, there is always that part of you going, but maybe if we just left this alone, it would go away. Uh, it, or if we just left it alone, they would draw different conclusions or it wouldn't come out so ugly. 
anyway, I do think about it. Okay, and then my last question really quickly is, um, so in your thinking about it and the research that you've done and everything like that, how exactly are you expressing to your children the error and the incorrectness in this instead of kind of trying to just show them, like, okay, this is how these things have been built up and this is the history behind it. How are you explaining to them, like, the error in this system, the incorrectness of this system, the inhuman aspect of this system and how it oppresses and mistreats individuals simply on unreal things, things that aren't real, they're made up? Um, well, I, I think I, I say that. I say, uh, you know, that cop, for, just to, to go back to Tamir Ace, you know, that cop drew a conclusion about him. They took one look and they made decisions because of his skin color and they acted on that and now there is no, there is no I'm sorry as a result of that action. It's, it's permanent and and it was wrong and it's, wrong to and it, it's wrong to draw the conclusion and it's even worse to act on it um i don't i try to say i try to say as much i try to say i try to say not just i can guess that that child was black or i can guess that um you know the victim of the chokehold was black or i can guess that trayvon with martin was black even if i you know even if you'd only heard a small snippet of that news story back when it happened, I try to say not just that, but, you know, and that's, and that's, that's horrible and it's embarrassing and it's a national, I mean, it's a, it's a degrade, it's a disgrace that we can draw those conclusions from those snippets of, of news stories. On the other hand, it's a disgrace that some of us don't draw those conclusions. It's, it's, that's just as bad. Uh, We'll leave it there. Um, the person that dialed in at eight seven eight six. Did you have a quick question for Miss Delantonia? Your line should be open. Uh, hi. Uh, yeah. Hi. Um. Good evening to Gus and the police. Um. I don't know if you mentioned this already, but how old did you say was your son? I have a thirteen-year-old, a ten-year-old, a nine-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Okay. Um. Did you the one I was talking your... to about Tamir was. Uh, you know, it's pretty much exactly Tamir's age. Okay. Um, did you start teaching your children about racism before the murder of Trayvon Martin or after? Um, I think it became more of a conscious, it's become a much more conscious effort for me since I started covering parenting specifically, since I started uh, writing about these things, since I started talking to other writers and realizing that it was something that we hadn't talked about. Um, but we definitely, I, I never practice the, if we don't talk about this, it's not going to, you know, it, it doesn't exist school of parenting. I don't remember having any specific conversations with them about uh, the police or that kind of systemic racism before Trayvon Martin, but on the other hand, Trayvon Martin was what, four years ago now, three years ago? So my oldest would have been nine. At that point, we were more talking, we were more having the kinds of conversations where they brightly come home from school and say, Dr. Martin Luther King fixed racism and now it's all good. And you're like, yeah, no, actually, no, sit down. 
So I, I was talking to them about race before that. We weren't talking to we weren't talking about uh, the police aspect or, or or the sort of formal. Yeah, we weren't talking about that part of it then. I'm you know I'm not. I feel like I'm new to that conversation too. I know that the rest of you all. I, I know that not everyone is, but I, in some sense, I am new to that conversation. I'm not sure that I really understood it, and I, I would say that I still don't. But I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really talking about it either until it became such a large part of the national conversation, and until I ended up in a national writing gig, which I, I wouldn't have. I wasn't five years ago. Oh, okay. So you're saying if the murder of Trayvon Martin wasn't didn't get national attention, you were. It totally did. I'm saying that I before that. No, I'm talking about. Hmm? Are you going to talk to your children about systemic or institutional racism if the murder of Trayvon Martin didn't occur? Oh, I I am sure something else would have led me to talk to them about it. It's not like that's the only thing that has happened. No, my point was more, I think, that before that, my oldest would have been nine and and it just hadn't, some of it is that I hadn't realized that I should be having that conversation and some of it is probably that they were a lot younger and also our, our family would have been, we were, we were in the act of becoming a family at that stage and probably a lot more insular. Okay, and you said you were from New Hampshire? I live in New Hampshire now. No, I'm from Texas originally. Uh, um, did you um, use the riots at the Teen Pumpkin Festival as an example, comparing it to the what happened in Ferguson? And we did. did. You use that and t- oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And the differences between the way that protesters were treated and the way that people talk about it and how cute it is that everyone flipped over cars and burned them up in the name of pumpkin festivals and and similarly, um, we've used sports. I don't think there have been any sports riots since the Ferguson stuff, but we've talked about that, how different Ohio it is. Ohio State, they the rioted that, in Ohio State uh, just a couple of days ago. Oh, did they? Ago. Was there yeah. a, a sports-related? Yeah. Yep. Was there some sports-related fun there at Ohio State? Yeah. No, we have talked about that. It's a great example. And we can probably expect one after the Super Bowl. But, yeah. Well, that's it. Thank you. All right, on uh, the person at uh, last four digits eight seven one four eight seven one four. Did you have a question for Miss Del Antonio? Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, Miss Del Antonio. Hello. Uh, uh, I have a question. You said earlier that you were the whitest of white girls, correct? Yep. If white is the standard to which supremacy is measured then what can a white person do to rise above that standard by being more whiter than the next white person? I don't think it's fair to say that I was using that phrase in the context of white supremacy. I was really using it to make it clear that I'm not trying to own an experience that isn't mine. Okay. So why why would you use that term? Then why would you use the term that whitest? To make it if very clear not, that if I not, understand if that not, this is not my experience. Hello? 
Go ahead. Hello? Oh, I said to make it very clear that I understand that the experience of the parent who has to talk to their child about how to react when the police stop them for no reason at all is not my, it's not my experience. Okay, so when someone talks to their kids about racism, they're the whitest among white people? Hmm. No, I don't think that you're interpreting that phrase fairly at all. Uh, let me move on to my next question. Uh, do you think that white people enjoy and or love being white rather than being human beings? No. But you just said earlier that you're the whitest white people and that you are white. Like when you read your articles, you don't say you're a human being or practice human beings, but you're just white. So would you in enjoy that being context, white? it was important to make it clear. Okay, so the white people still being white. Go ahead. I said in case someone was reading it without the picture, in that context, it was important to make it clear that I was white, right, that I was a white person writing. Okay. I wouldn't so, want someone, and in fact, people still did. There were still a few people out there that read the article and quoted me as a black parent, and that's not what I want. That's, that's, not, that's not right. Do you have a definition of human being? Do I need one? Excuse me? I don't think I need a... I, I don't think I Do need a definition, definition of, of, of what? Huh? I'm sorry, one of my kids walked into the room. I may not have heard you. Do you want to repeat your question? Okay. Do you have a definition? If you don't have a definition of human being, do you have a, How do you? If you don't have a definition of human being, do you have a definition of white? Um, I think a white person is someone of historic, you know, who's historically. I don't know. Do I need to define that? It's a person of Caucasian parentage. Okay. So how is it that you, so that if you don't have a definition for a human being, how do you know you're being a human being? But you know that you're being white. I'm sorry. I think this is kind of silly. Okay. Uh, my last question to you. Uh, if, let me word it here. If, if you're not racist, then what is the purpose of being white if not to be racist? What other reason could there be to be white other than to not be racist, to be racist? So I do, do I need to repeat that again? Um, but I didn't choose to be white. So I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. It's not, there isn't any purpose in my being white. I was born to the parents that I was born to with the skin color that I have. I can't give you a purpose for that. I don't have any purpose in being female either. Hang on. I uh, wanted to make sure I got in uh, the other folks as well. Uh, appreciate the question. Okay, well, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. 8714-8714. Did you have a question for Ms. Delantonio? Um, 
I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to call it very soon. I've got a kid trying to show me his homework, and we've we've been on for a while. So, can we do one more question? Go ahead, caller. Uh, you should be with us. Eight one seven nine or. Oh, okay. Um, Abby Hurt. Yes, ma'am. Um, thanks for taking my call. I'll make it quick. Um, to the guest, who do you think is most ignorant about um, racism, white su- supremacy? Uh, white people or non-white people? White people. At least this one. I, you've, uh, you've already told me some things that I didn't, you know, maybe I've been hiding my eyes, but hmm, you, you guys have already pointed out some things that I was not aware were, were happening. So you say white people are more most ignorant, okay? And the last question: Do you what is your position on um, white and uh, non-white people marrying, dating? Um, I don't, I don't have a position. That's why I, I don't need a position. I it's. Do you think it's um? It's totally okay. fine. It's fine. Okay. Thank you. That's my question. Thanks for taking my call, Gus. Great. No Thank you uh, so much for staying with us. I did want to ask before you uh, exited, uh, reflecting on your career as a prosecuting attorney, uh, do you think at any point you directly and or indirectly practiced racism in any capacity fulfilling your duties? I think indirectly, certainly. How so? Because, you know, it, it's... um. When you look back on, when I look back on that system um, and the way that the, the way that the crimes were prosecuted, in particular the drug crimes, I'm not happy to have been a part of that. I'm, mm. you know, I'm sort of proud to have served with some great, with some good people, but I'm not particularly happy to have have been a part of something that I now look on as. Uh, not being the way that we want to handle drug laws, among many, many other things. So. Mm, Michelle, I haven't, quite, I haven't really quite put that experience to bed for myself, if that makes any sense. Right. I I would like to ask uh, to make a request, and, and particularly given what you just ended with, that you haven't quite put that experience to bed yet. I think it would be super constructive for you to write honestly about your experience and discuss what you just said in terms of you think you indirectly practiced racism with your role as a prosecuting attorney and go into the detail of that. That man, that should be on the parenting blog because that's something that would be extremely helpful for a lot of people to be white, non-white, everybody to be able to have an honest concrete way of talking about racism and to be able to say, hey, this is a white person speaking honestly about things she did. That is a thousand times more important than, oh, I can go in the store and they don't follow me around. And if I'm drunk driving, they won't arrest me or they won't choke me out. Like, no, these are specific things that I, a white person does to practice racism. That would be great. Uh, And then also it would be cherry on top when you if you write about that also to include Matter of fact, you can even make the title of your piece, Am I a Racist? And you can include some of uh, the feedback that you got in this discussion since you said it made you thought of some new things. Just a pitch for a report. Is this something you think you could do for us? Mm. That sounds painful. I'll have to think about it. it writing about the DA's office is a, is a hard one. You kind of promise not to do it when you go in, but I'm not there anymore. 
I've often thought, why am I still living, you know, why am I still obeying those rules? So that one I really do need to write about. You're absolutely right. That's not an easy one. Am Writing an article called Am I a Racist? With a question mark. Ooh, with a question the comments. Mark. That would be horrible. It would, you would I get would, so much I would attention. definitely have to think about that. You would get so much attention. I t- it would be one of the most I would get so much lovely attention. Gosh. I, yeah. The interviews, right. everything. I appreciate you hanging with us for the extra time. Uh, we hopefully can get you back on the program. If you continue to write about racism, it would be grand to have you back to. Uh, I will be continuing. Okay. I will absolutely be continuing to write about it. That, in my opinion, is part of our mandate. It's part of family. It's important. Am and I a racist? Definitely something. And I hope that other people who are guest writers for me will continue to write about it as well. Am I a racist? That's the title. That's the one I'm looking for. Am I a racist? Am I a racist? Am I a racist? <gasps> Am I a racist? You're hurting me. And tell, hey, you said be uncomfortable. I don't think you're hurting as much as Tamir Rice's family right now. So I mean, you're absolutely right. I am. Am I a racist? Am I a racist? <laughs> we uh, enjoyed it, Miss. Uh, KJ, Dell, Antonia, again, if you want to check out some of the reports we have discussed, it should be all linked in the description. New York Times, fantastic. Uh, really enjoy the dialogue. Enjoy the rest of your Thank evening. Thank you. I did too. We hope to have you back. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Context of white supremacy. Am I a racist? Am I a racist? We will, uh, hmm, I'm trying to organize. Um We will do commentary first because uh, I have other things I want to make sure. She was only supposed to be with us for an hour, so she hung out an extra 30. I didn't give her even the option. I just was going to try and hit as many callers as I could until uh, she said she was going to leave. But uh, I appreciated getting the questions in, even asking about the nature of being white. Um, if I, I generally don't do this, you know, it's VGQ. You do whatever you do. Uh, the person that asked that question about what the purpose for being white, the way I would pitch that question is... If you're not a racist, what is your reason for being white? I wouldn't say anything. I would pitch it just like that. I wouldn't add anything to it. No suggestion of what you think. I would pitch it just that way because I think uh, sometimes if you add a lot, like if you talk and you kind of answer the question uh, when you ask it, uh, that impacts the way the white person will respond. I found that you can you can sometimes get a bit more information if you just Pitch it. Nothing else. If you're not a racist, what is your reason for being white? Or why are you classified as white? However you want to choose to ask the question. But I wouldn't. Nothing after that. Just spam. (laughs) I think Josh Wiggity calls it fire and forget. Don't add a whole lot. Let's just do it. Bam. Make it as concise. Right to the point. And don't add. Don't answer the question uh, when you ask it, if that makes sense. But certainly you can, you know, everybody BGQ. Uh, I'm still learning. I'm not an expert at anything. So we'll do commentary first. So uh, if folks have anything that they want to share about what uh, they heard from Ms. Uh, Dellen, uh, without the background noise, please, if you're on speakerphone, if you could turn that off, that would be uh, really appreciated. Uh, I will share uh, because she, she tried to imply that I didn't, uh, hadn't done my homework, man. This is the context of white supremacy. <laughs> Gusty Renegade. Uh, I do my homework uh, in preparation for the programs. I hope it shows uh, the reports of hers that I read in preparation for this program, just in case anyone is interested in checking out her work. She's been doing this, as she said, for four years. I mean, it's a lot of content. Uh, But I read um, in Vaccines We Trust. Will you watch Raising Adam Lanza on Frontline? 
LGBT survey, The Age I First Felt Different, Talking Truth, Trials and Trayvon with Children, Will Parents Still Turn Down an Anti-Cancer Vaccine, On a Tragic Anniversary, Turning Off the News. This was about the uh, Sandy Hook shooting. The best time to talk to your children about the next national tragedy now. That's also about uh, Sandy Hook. Casual remarks that hurt microaggression and adoptive families. That's where she talked about uh, having a non-white adopted, abducted a non-white child. American kids learning to aim Fire. That's the one where she talks about taking her own children to the gun range and has a photo of her children uh, learning how to shoot uh, rifles and pistols as well, I believe. Charities that inspire kids, the African Library Project. How will you talk to your sons about Tamir Rice shot in the park after waving a toy gun? Racial bias in discipline. What if your child's school is harder on some kids than others? The danger of not talking to your children about race. Trayvon Martin and the talk black parents have with their teenage sons. The danger of not talking to your children about. Oh, I read that. Okay. Uh, Weekly quandary talking racism and sexism with children. And the last one, I can't explain. That was right after the uh, non-indictment of Dan Pantaleo in New York for choking Eric Garner to death, uh, which she was saying she she couldn't explain. And that she had the photograph of the pudgy white man that I used on my blog uh, holding the sign that says, uh, I can't breathe. Uh, she has that with her post as well. But those those are just the posts that I read. Uh, she has many, many others. I did want to ask her about vaccines because that's been popular. And we talked about that before and people saying that vaccines are dangerous. You shouldn't do it. She's written a lot about that. And she is pro vaccine. She even has some posts that she wrote this week with the whole measles outbreak in California. I was going to ask her about that as well, but didn't have time. Uh, with that, uh, folks that are on the line have comments that they want to share. Uh, feel free. Everybody who has a hand up your line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How you doing, Gus? Thomas Smith. Um, I had a few observations. Um, man, I always knew the way they taught Martin Luther King in school was bad for blacks, but the way she said it, you know, taking it in the context of white supremacy, to hear a white person say, you know, her son came home and say, hey, MLK died and racism ended. I mean, that was like, wow, that, the, the, for them to process it in that manner, they, they really, you know, don't think they're racist. I mean, like, it's over, you know, he died and it's over. Um, the guy who asked the question, um, the whitest of white people. That was a great question, I thought. Um, and um, lastly, um, she answered that with um, white people choose. I, I didn't choose to be white. You know, I was just born white. And I was thinking, you know, white people choose to be white. And they choose who everybody else is going to be, too. I mean, they hold the Trump card. Um, and that was it. I'll, before any other folks uh, chime in, I thought it was supremely important that this is a former prosecuting attorney that we were talking to. This is not <laughs> the white people are ignorant. <laughs> the whole thing. 
uh, that's it was in the forefront of my mind. I would have spent more time on that if, you know, whatever. But that's why I saved that question for the end about if she practiced racism in her duties as a prosecuting attorney. But that is hugely important. We're not just talking to some random side. This is a former prosecuting attorney who is probably responsible for a whole lot of black people being a part of a prison labor camp. Everybody else who's lying, uh, you had a hand up. Your line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, one of the mail callers uh, kind of touched on what I wanted to ask her because earlier she said that she is a, a white Italian, I believe. That's, that's how she put it. And um, I believe Italians were not always classified as white, so I wanted to ask her, did her parents or grandparents uh, explain to her what they had to do, what actions they had to take, what uh, commitments they had to make or oaths they had to make in order to become white. Uh, I think, as we know, Jews, Irish, uh, and Italians were not classified. So I wanted to know what is it that they had to do to, to get their white card, what things must they carry out to be uh, classified in this group uh, as white people, because, again, at one time they were not. So it would have been interesting to hear her uh, response to that question. I concur. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to say you were on it with the cowbell, but I was waiting for the sound clip that you usually play um, about uh, who's most ignorant <laughs> about the system of racism, white supremacy, because I was really just, well, I guess I wasn't surprised because the way she was acting and responding to the questions of um, her opinion was white people were most ignorant about racism. So I thought that was typical for her personality type, but um, that's all I wanted to share. Yeah, I, I found it interesting that she did not know who Chris Cott was. So she made a comment saying that the movie was depressing. That means you have a concept of what the movie's about, but you don't know who Chris Kyle is. Um, and she was saying also that, like, that racism was ugly, and um, she didn't want to commit verbal racism. So the, <laughs> the more she spoke, it just seemed like she just wanted to have a more refined form of racism, like what her job is, like, uh, being a lawyer and putting black men in prison like that and not like a, a, a more, uh, what do you say now, more physically aggressive and more uh, uh, blatant and obvious that you're being racist. Mm. Yeah, I... And she said that also that she was pained about racism, mm -hmm. but... She didn't have that conversation until after, like, like when the kid, the kid was nine or something like that. Right. 
And then you asked her about writing that article, and she said it would be painful. <laughs> and I was like, okay, obviously you don't want to feel any pain at all. If you've never read the article, it, it was painful. So, yeah, she was, yeah, she was a white woman. <laughs> <laughs> the whitest of white women. Yeah. She, I, I thought I did with the Chris Kyle thing, though. Uh, I find that hard to believe that you are a prosecuted former prosecuting attorney and you are a full time paid writer for the New York Times and you don't know who Chris Kyle is. No, <laughs> that's not believable. Like that's that's just simply not believable. It reminded me we had uh, a suspected racist on the program who did identify as non-white, but he's not a black person. So this person could actually be white. Who knows? But um, Eric Green, he wrote a book about the Planet of the Apes series. And uh, I asked him because he had a line in his book where he said he made he used the metaphor of uh, a tar baby and. It was the same week that some white person, I forget the person's name, but a, a white Republican official uh, was talking about President Obama and used the same metaphor uh, about the tar baby or briar patch, whatever. And uh, song, it all goes back to Song of the South. And uh, he got in trouble. People were saying that this was racist and I can't believe he said this and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I asked him about that, you know, that incident. And I said, uh, have you heard about this? And he said, no. And this was uh, the summer of 2011. Like th this was the talk of the week. Like, oh, my God, this guy said this about President Obama. Oh, my God, that is so racist. I mean, it was like, how can you not know about this? Like I, it would not take any. I'm sure if I just put a do a tar baby and President Obama search, it's going to come up on the first page because this was like the thing. And I thought this we talked about it after he exited abruptly. Um, and people were saying they think this guy lied. I think she. I think she totally lied. Princeton mom. She just lied. Well, don't, let's not forget we had a Princeton um, graduate who didn't know how many white people was on the earth. So, you know, anything's logical at this point. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it's there, but apparently there are so many instances of white people, uh, expressing their disgust about something and using, uh, tar baby that it's a lot of these instances, but, uh, let me make sure it was, it was not uh briar patch. I might be, uh, it might be a briar patch, but I, I mean, this was like distinct. This was, uh. Huge incident from from 2011. It, was, it came out the same time as the Planet of the Apes, or yeah, it was it was right around the same uh, time that the uh, what was it Rise of the Planet of the Apes came out. It was the same weekend, I think, the same weekend that the uh, London riots happened. This was right on the heels of all that. Hopefully, I'll uh, confirm. Did we miss anybody? Anybody have a hand up who didn't get to get their comment? Oh. Please do not, man. The the cows is specifically engineered for non-white people. <laughs> we are not. This program is not designed for whites at all. <laughs> there is no reason to ever, ever, ever encourage, recommend that white people listen to this program. <laughs> That's just asking the enemy to come and study and refine their techniques like that. <laughs> not that that doesn't happen, but I mean, that certainly should not be something that a request that we are making.
and it was 2011. Uh, it's uh, all over. I guess it's uh, Republican, uh, excuse me, Representative Doug Lamborn uh, in Colorado. Uh, he said this. This was uh, back in 2011, but this was all over the place. He said he didn't know anything about this or this reference, the same reference he used in his book, said he didn't know anything about it, hadn't heard of it. I don't think he was being honest. And I strongly suspect that uh, Miss Delantonio was not being honest either. Anybody else have anything they want to get in? Hey, Gus, did you get my email about the um, disco race riots? I did. I was reading it earlier today. Were you aware of that? Because I've never heard of that until. I was not. I didn't know anything about it. That was all news to me. <laughs> like, uh, I was I was totally shocked watching it. They were burning the whole stadium. And it, like, it, was, it was like nothing. It was, I mean, unbelievable. Did you see the footage, like the, the video? Of of the, I think I linked it in there. Or the YouTube with, with with what they actually did, like, I mean, burning trash cans in the middle of Gomisky Field. <laughs> I mean, they, they they could get away with anything. I was like, this is unbelievable. But disco, and I I didn't even know disco was a black music. I thought oh, I always associated with, uh, with um John Travolta. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, why, that's how successful they are. They do this all the time. Uh, they uh, steal everything, <laughs> and you end up thinking whites created everything, and pretty much all they've done consistently is is steal <laughs> culture vultures, uh, that vampiric relationship, and that uh, albino tree clip. I mean, that's their entire history, uh, and the type of contact, and uh, yeah, the type of contact that we've had with whites worldwide, and non-white people on the whole have had with them, so... Absolutely. Iggy Azalea and Macklemore, that's just the latest installation. But yeah, I will share with listeners because I didn't know anything about that um, at all. Uh, this uh, piece really quick. If folks didn't have anything uh, to share, I did have other stuff, but this, just so folks know what I'm talking about, uh, from 2011, that's why I say read the news, read the news, read the news. Uh, August 2011, uh, Doug Lamborn, Colorado congressman, refers to Obama dealings as being stuck to a tar baby. Congressman Doug Lamborn, U.S. Representative for Colorado, was recently on 630 KHOW Capels and Silverman radio show discussing President Obama, the president's economic policies, and the debt ceiling deals being debated. Lamborn used a controversial phrase to describe working with the president. Even if some people say, well, the Republicans should have done this or they should have done that, they will hold the president responsible. Now, I don't even want to have to be associated with him. It's like touching a tar baby. <laughs> you get it? You're stuck and you're a part of the problem now and you can't get away. <laughs> I don't want that to happen to us, but if it does or not, he'll still get properly so the blame because his policies for four years will have failed the American people. You can listen to this entire clip. They have it online. Late Monday, Representative Lamborn sent a personal letter to President Obama apologizing for his use of the phrase tar baby, a controversial term that has a derogatory connotation between African Americans. According to Lamborn's website, he claims that he was attempting to verbalize his opinion that the president's economic policies have created a quagmire for the nation and are responsible for the 
dismal economic conditions our country faces. Lamborn goes on to say that he regrets that he chose the phrase tar baby rather than the word. <laughs> Come on, man. That's why I say pay attention. To, I mean, this is a, a more blatant illustration, but that's why I say pay attention to metaphors because they reveal so much. Uh, and I mean, just for me, the detail that he gives, he didn't mean quagma. He meant exactly what he said. I don't want to touch that nigga. <laughs> it, it reminded me of the same sort of tone that I get from uh, Benjamin Netanyahu <laughs> while all of this is is going down. Um, at any rate, um, the I thought the person who said that the guest reminded her uh, slightly of um, Crystal Tyler. I can see that. I had to think about it for a second to see their. Uh, pre- uh, presentations, but I can I can totally see that. And she adopted a non-white child. I mean, this this is what I mean. Like, like to segue, uh, people apparently some of the folks did go ahead and listen to uh, the exchange with uh, Susan Patton and Dr. Watkins, and it was a very close vote. <laughs> like, it was quite a few people were like, you know, I'm cool. We don't ever need to listen. To her. Um, and other folks who, uh, some people who listened to it and said that they thought it would be constructive and then other people had not listened to it, but they just thought it would be constructive to hear, uh, regardless. Um, the thing that kind of swayed me and I, I was kind of on the side of, I'm cool. Like, I don't need to hear this at all. But the thing that swayed me was that there were people who said they were cool with not hearing it, but they said, if we were going to do it as a group thing, then I could see where that would be constructive. Um, and like, if I counted all of those with people saying, yes, go ahead. I think it's constructive. It would be the yays have it. This is something we'll listen to. Um, plus I, I feel like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. So if it gets to a point where my nerves are plucked, I can just press the stop button and, uh, we can ride on that. But, uh, I wanted to go ahead and play that. Plus I have a, uh, fail safe. Um, if this, you know, is repulsive, uh, you all can voice your displeasure, right? If, at any point you, hey, I've had enough. This is not constructive. Let's move on. Uh, if we get seven, if there are seven hands uh, on the board, like people that, you know, I would like to talk, let's move on. I will stop the clip. Uh, now, there are already about seven hands. So uh, if you already have your hand up, right, if you're, I'm done, we don't need to hear this. Very easy. Just hang up, dial back in, uh, star six. Press the number one to put your hand up again, and I'll see that. So that's the procedure. If I see seven hands up, we ride. We'll move on to something else. Uh, or if my nerves get plucked, because I was kind of on the side of I don't really need to hear this myself. But if I'm disgusted or seven people say, hey, let's move on, we will do so. But we'll go ahead and check it out. The thing that I'm glad um, before, or I haven't even heard this, so I'm hearing it the first time with you all, but I watched... Uh, the Lone Survivor, because we were preparing for uh, American Sniper, another war, uh, another war film. I watched it, right? And uh, man, it's... <laughs> I think Thomas said he saw it as well. That's a whole other conversation. We'll maybe talk about that tomorrow. But I'm never surprised. I'm never, ever surprised. Uh, whites have done a phenomenal job. We had someone who was probably paid very well to place large numbers of black people in prison labor camps. That's what she did by profession and admitted that she indirectly practiced racism as a prosecuting attorney who has abducted a non-white child 
and now writes and is paid probably pretty well to write for the New York Times full-time staff member to write about racism. I mean, (laughs) that's how staggering things are in this system. So I'm never surprised uh, at victims, you know, how we respond to racism, white supremacy. That never surprises me, particularly, I think, once you have an understanding, you, you know, have adequate expectations for the way we respond to racism is pretty predictable. At any rate, um, we'll listen to the clip. Seven hands. I'll stop it. If I get disgusted, I'll stop it, too. This is uh, from yesterday, actually. Uh, Susan Patton, the Princeton mom, and Dr. Boyce Watkins, black male, victim of racism. Uh, we'll check it out and see what they had to say. Hi, I'm Dr. Boyce Watkins, and uh, this week in Black and White, I am once again here with my good friend out of New York, Miss Susan Patton, a.k.a. the Princeton Mom. How are you doing today, Susan? Fantastic, Boyce. And you? I'm doing really well. And we were talking, we always talk a lot off the air, um, because we we learn so much from each other. Uh, And I was explaining to you literally 20 seconds ago um, that uh, the reason that I love talking to you is because uh, I know your opinions are honest. I know your opinions are courageous. And I know you say you you say all the things that 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 maybe might occur in conversation when people aren't around or when people of color aren't around, right? And and I and I like those conversations because um, as as uncomfortable as they may be sometimes, um, I think it's important to to hear that to gain information to kind of learn and understand how race works in America uh, without being committed to having to feel like we have to agree with each other at the end of the day, right? Because we're right. we're going to see That's see the world right. differently. And and you were telling me about uh, a show that you went on this week, and and it was kind of a nasty kind of back and forth, kind of like a the the way it sounds. It sounds to me like this guy made you feel the way black people feel when they go on Fox News. What well, tell me about that? <laughs> It was, it was fascinating. He outreached to me. His name is Gus Renegade. I don't know if that's actually his last name, but he goes by the name Gus Renegade, and he moderates a program, a radio program called The Cows, C-O-W-S, standing for The Context of White Supremacy. Okay, he contacted me after seeing our conversation on YouTube and thought that he and I could have a conversation that would be meaningful. So uh, happy, happy to engage in conversation. In the back of my head, I'm thinking, "Oh man, I'm cheating on voice. This is bad." But okay, I knew I, I, I'm so, hurt. So I'm so hurt, so but I'll, I'll get over it. I'll, I'll, I'll survive. Okay, good. I, I had a feeling you'd be big about it. So I, I spent two and a half hours on air with Gus Renegade and his listeners who called in. It was a call-in radio program. It went from eight o'clock until almost ten thirty. And it was quite fascinating that much of that time, almost all of that time, was spent by Gus and his listeners telling me that I was a racist, that I was a white supremacist, and like all white supremacists, I am dedicated to the abuse and mistreatment of black people. And I thought, no, that is really, that's not who I am. Uh, I I don't know a whole lot of people who are dedicated to the abuse and mistreatment of black people. No, that's absolutely not right. And not only is that incorrect and an inflammatory statement, but it's just that kind of sensationalistic, name-calling, unfounded, broad-brush, lambasting that makes people, in this case, White people say, wow, 
I don't want to be anywhere near this guy or his listeners or any people who think like he does because, well, they're mad as hell. They're mad at me. I haven't done anything. But, wow, look at the name calling. Look at the things they are saying. And I held my own, and I appreciated that there were many uh, listeners who posted on Facebook. Uh, on I'm sorry, not on Facebook, on Twitter. Listen to the whole interview. Don't agree with this woman, but, man, she held her own. She maintained her composure. And I did, because I think that's important. But I came off that broadcast thinking, wow, this is such an important thing for people to understand when black people question why why are white people afraid of us? Why do white people respond to us the way they do? This is one of the reasons that there seems to be in some communities of black people an undercurrent of just I, I hate you because you're white, I don't trust you because you're white, you are you exist to do nothing but harm me. And how could anybody, black, white or anybody else, not feel, wait a minute? Wait a minute, you don't even know me, first of all. And if you got to know me even a little bit, you would know that's not that's not in my heart to be abusive to a black person or to be abusive to anybody, a white person or an animal or a child. But to be labeled an abuser, to be labeled a racist, a white supremacist, man, that's that's not what you want to do if you're looking to encourage conversation or encourage interaction or cooperation and i think it's just so important for everybody to understand you don't cast those kind of you don't hurl those kind of accusations against somebody simply because they're they're white and you make the assumption you're going to paint all white people with that same uh broad brush i think that's a huge mistake and it hurts all black people because it makes white people think Wow, I don't want, I, I don't want, I don't want to, wow. I am so not into that. I so don't want to even put up with that kind of abusive attitude. I am out of here. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I will I will say that the best way for me to understand um, how uh, the conversation feels on the other side is, is I think about how I feel as a man if I if I talk to feminists, you know, uh, and well, here's what I find. Um, first of all, there's a broad diversity of feminism. I think there are some people who who rightfully believe in in equal rights for women, who fight for that, uh, who deal with the abuse, many abuses uh, committed by men uh, all around the world, um, and and then and then you have those that are really hurt, that are just kind of on that extreme end, uh, where uh, you know. Pretty much anything that comes out of the mouth of a man is almost always going to be vilified before it even comes out, right? Uh, because it's kind of gotten to the point of becoming all-out war. And right. now here's the thing. Um, you know, when I engage in that dialogue, and you and I have gone, kind of gone to war with with uh, with the extreme feminists, uh, uh, and what I decided to do was, especially after I talked to a couple of my feminist friends to try to understand where they were coming from, was, look, I held my ground, number one. I, I just said, look, I'm not going to let you bully me into accepting a point of view that I don't agree with or, right. or somehow making me feel that my, my perspective is invalid because I'm a man. However, right. um, I did spend that time to you know, try to ask myself, why, why such a strong reaction? You know, what uh, hurt has this person gone through? Uh, by certain men, not me, 
but certain men, maybe it's a sexual assault or an abusive relationship. What hurt has this woman gone through that's making her lash out at me so angrily? And and when I realized that, it, that they weren't really talking to me, uh, they were actually talking to someone else, it allowed me to uh, spend more time kind of absorbing and trying to understand where they're coming from uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of responding to conflict with conflict. Because when someone's mean to us, when someone's nasty toward us, our first reaction is, oh, well, I'm going to be nasty to you too. And and, and I, I think to some extent you have to remain firm. Uh, but I think that um, what where I see, in, you know, encouragement from your response to this kind of backlash is the fact that you you still stayed there, you continue to engage, you held your ground, you made your point. And, and, and what I would encourage you is, is that last point for you as well is to just say, you know, where's where's this pain coming from? Is this real or are these people just delusional? Because I don't think that when people lash out in an angry way, they're always being delusional. Um, there are lots of black people who are consistently hurt by white supremacy and racism, which is very, very real. Um, there's a long history of this that's built the world in which we live, and 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 people are are affected by this. So so it does build up in anger. I know this anger because I felt it myself. But but at the same time, I think you know when I talk to someone like you, what I say to myself is, you know what, I can't believe she said that. I totally don't agree. But I just appreciate the fact that you're taking the time to sit and engage and, and to just be honest about where you're coming from. Sure. Sure. Well, I think that the analogy is correct, that there are feminists who just knee-jerk will will blast, attack any man that comes anywhere near them because they are just so committed to their own grievance industry. And that's what it seems like. There are feminists that feel, to me... It feels like the angry feminists have developed this grievance industry, and that's where their commitment is. They are just all about the grievance. When I spoke with Gus Renegade, I felt the same way. Like, this is the black grievance industry. Now, when I consider what you're saying, do women, just as do blacks, have good reason to sometimes be very angry at some white people or some men or others who would oppress them? Well, yes, they do. I get that. But what I'm completely confident of is that no feminist and no black person is going to help themselves or get what they want ultimately by being antagonistic, by being nasty, by being disrespectful, by being inflammatory, by hurling sensational accusations. Nobody's going to benefit from that because all it does is cause the recipient to say, you know what? I'm out of here. And what they think in their head is, all right, these people are nuts. These people are nuts. The feminists are nuts. The black people, they're nuts. They are nuts. They are not approaching this honestly, legitimately, individually. You can't group everybody and say all white people or all men. But but but, but let's be let's be honest too, though. I mean, there is a white grievance industry as well. Um, you know, I and, and again, it's it's a matter of perspective. It's not really a matter of a universal truth. But when black people watch Fox News. And they see these very sensationalist, inflammatory images of people of color. Uh, you know, a bunch of black kids went and, and murdered an innocent person for no reason. Or, you know, they feel that Fox News caters to that white grievance industry as well. You know, and, and unfortunately, that white grievance industry has, is, has been responsible for a lot of atrocities that have occurred over the last several hundred years in this country. If you study what happened to the Native Americans, what happened to black people, what happened to Mexicans, etc., uh, it's been pretty atrocious, pretty horrible. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that what probably has to happen is people have to just accept the idea that none of us are ever going to really see the world 
the same way. We're, we're all going to see the world differently based on our experience. And the best thing we can do is to try to listen and learn when, when other people talk. When, when I listen to you, I know I'm not going to – there are going to be a lot of things you say. You're never going to convince me that you're telling the truth. You're never going to convince me that you're right, ever, right? But you're, you can always convince me that you're right based on your point of view. Right. And and so if I want to understand Susan Patton, then, you know, that's what I, I, I've got to be able to be open to that. And here's the other thing, too. And, and I, I want to throw this out there. Um, you know, be, I, I would be very careful about sort of, you know, pushing forward this notion that people of color or feminists or anybody else that they have to get some sort of approval or acceptance or support from from the white community in order to uh to, to be whole or to be complete you know one of the aspects or one of the dimensions of white supremacy is the idea that that as a black person you are better off if you get white people to like you if white people accept you and agree with you and support you uh and that's a problematic notion because there's been such a long history up until this day of white people kind of judging us prejudging us in ways that we don't think are fair um and and, and so uh, and even if you talk about images of black people in media that that make white people afraid of us because I, I think there is a fear right many of those images are generated by media companies that are owned by white people uh, like hip-hop hip-hop on the radio that's not black people black people don't support that crap i mean some some do i mean don't get me wrong there are some who've been who bought into it but that's created by media companies that are not owned by black people um, you know, when when murders occur in black neighborhoods, those guns are not made by black people. We don't want those guns in our neighborhoods. You know, I'm so so here. I think that we have to all sort of accept what role you know we might play in in the creation of this chaos. Um, and at the same time, I I think that dialogue dialogue to some extent can be a scary thing because sometimes dialogue can be dangerous because you you get in that lion's den and you're talking to someone who totally disagrees with you and you get to the point where you, you you're fighting back and forth and it doesn't make anything better um and so maybe the, the goal in dialogue in my opinion is to find a way to create constructive dialogue even if it just says you know what i'm gonna let you talk and i'm gonna just listen to you no matter how mad i am i'm just gonna listen i'm gonna let you get your voice be heard you do the same with me and then we can choose how much we want to grow from that conversation. Because some people don't grow. Some people sit down and are so self-righteous that they just say, oh, my God, this person was talking and they're a complete idiot and everything they said was wrong and stupid. And, 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 and to me, I don't see the, the, the productivity there. I, I just don't, I don't see that broadening your view as a human being to say I was right, they were wrong, and that's what happened. Right. No, I agree with you. Um, where I disagree is I don't think that Fox News is a white grievance. Of course, industry. of course you don't. No, I don't. I truly don't. I appear on Fox News all the time. I love the folks at Fox News. These are a great bunch of people that usually express a perspective that is like my own. It's conservative. It's Republican. Of course you love them. That's that's what's supposed to happen, right? And I do love them. I appear on air with them regularly. I love Charlie Gasparino. I love all my pals who are over at Fox News. So I don't see that as a white grievance industry perpetuator. Of course all. you don't. I mean, but think about it. If you're not supposed to, right? All right. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I was not bothered. Uh, I, I chuckled. I laughed. I listened. I took notes. Uh I would say constructive. <laughs> I would I would say constructive. Um hmm, I will do it the same way we do the book study club. The everybody who uh has a hand up, your line should be open. Any thoughts on uh what you heard? This is from yesterday, twenty four hours ago, Dr. Boyce Watkins. And 
the Princeton mom, Susan Patton. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I'm there. Uh, greetings to uh, Augusta hosts and uh, listeners and callers. Um, evening. A few things that I uh, caught was, I guess you could say she was using uh, metaphors and some cliches, and um, she was making it sound like, oh, well, you know, I, I held my own, you know, like she was in some kind of a, you know, um, Roman Empire setting or something like that. And, and it seemed like she was exaggerating on her language. And, uh, you know, for her to make the um, the conflation going to, you know, the, the sexism thing, and not saying that that isn't an issue too, but they don't, they don't really distinguish when that, when that comes up, you start saying, um, uh, blacks and feminists, but yet you can mix the terms together, you know, black feminists and you have white feminists, you know, and, um, you know, racism that pretty much, uh, plagued the issue and, uh, the, the sexism of the, uh, feminist community, you know, there were issues there based on race and then as well as all the other issues. So, I hadn't really heard that lady before, but uh, it, it seemed like she, um, <laughs> I don't know if she's going to be uh, coming back to this program anytime soon, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll let the next person speak. Can I be heard? Yes, you can. Hey, thanks. Um, I, what I heard to this evening from her I'm more or less slightly disappointed with Dr. Boyce Watkins because he doesn't gun down her lunatic points. He actually gives them life um, by making them, validating them, you know, to even inter compare black strife to, you know, sexism is basically uh, dishonest. You know, they're not the same. Um, if anything, sexism is a product of white supremacy because even within the sexism, men versus women, black women don't make as much as white women. It, to me, it's just it's just a false equivalency. And um, you know, he he, it should not be allowed. Like you should not be allowed to uh, hold these negative um, racist opinions and not be challenged. And I feel like he kind of softballed her, and I was a little disappointed in Dr. Boyce Watkins. I don't expect everybody to be the renegade, but I do expect, a, uh, I guess, a uniform uh, reaction to uh, racist rhetoric. I I'll mute my line. Hello, sir. Yeah, go ahead, M1. Hey, thank you, thank you. Uh, did you get the letter I sent you? I just got it today. Thank you kindly. It just came <laughs> today. All right, that, that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, I don't know if did you hear the term uh, BGI? Yeah, that is a that is a fancier way that uh, racists will use instead of saying the race card, they will say BGI, Black Grievance Industry. You know, to dismiss any criticism of. 
how we are victimized by their racism. And, uh, and but Dr. Boyce Watkins was correct. And he, how he talked about how Fox News does promote this uh, white grievance industry, Bill O'Reilly in particular. And, uh, and of course, she disagreed that there wasn't any, you know, white grievance on Fox News. I mean, it's just dishonest because all they do is just bash President Obama, particularly if you're a black person and you just like President Obama, you have a platform. And it was recently revealed that Fox News has only a 1% black viewership. So it's obvious that is a white grievance industry. I mean, a 1% black viewership. As for your other guests, KJ, that those are her initials, correct? Oh, yes, sir. KJ Delantonia. Okay, uh, for someone who is supposedly serious, she seemed awfully giddy. I mean, just snickering and doing what you would call the dumb blonde approach to what was to what you to what we were discussing. I'm just sorry that, that she left because I would love to have asked her what are you going to do to correct if, if you feel that you practice racism what are you going to do to correct some of the people who were harmed to correct some of the injustices that were harmed by people who were affected by your racism. You know. And she also reminded me of that hypocritical prosecutor who complained about Mark Wahlberg, lone survivor, complained about how he shouldn't get a pardon. I agree. You could have done, but that same prosecutor could have done much more to make sure he did more than 45 days in prison on an attempted murder charge. So, so for her, so for these women to say these things now is just really, is just really incorrect. Or, if it is incorrect, what are you doing to correct it? Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Can I be Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um... The clip with Dr. Watkins and Ms. Patton, um, 
I felt like he did a pretty good job as best he could, I guess, with the whole, like, trying not to offend her. Because I listened to what he was saying to her in his breakdown as him basically trying to tell her, like, oh, yeah, we really need to be careful about assuming that all black people want white people to like them and we need disapproval because that's kind of what she was, that's what it felt like she was expecting for us to be, like, wanting her approval. And that's the way it came across with how she was explaining it to him, too. I don't know what they're, you know, expecting to get when that's just going to turn us off and we're going to be out of here. We're just going to think they're crazy. And he, I think he did a pretty good job of explaining to her, like, you know, there is reason for people to be upset. And I guess as best he could, he was trying to kind of flip the script on her and make her think. But that's just it. You can't really do that with people like her because they're not going to ever think they're wrong. She, that's the whole, that's the way it seems their exchanges are anyway. Like she doesn't really approach them trying to learn anything from him. It's just giving her opinion, him giving her his opinion. And that's it. We're not really trying to learn anything. We're not trying to change anything. We're not trying to give any solutions. So overall, I mean, it just further exhibited to me after the conversation, like, she's not serious about much of anything and changing anything. She just kind of wants to be like, oh, I'm willing to talk about it, so you should be grateful for that. That's all I have to say. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hello, Justin, to all the other callers and listeners on the line. Um, <laughs> I listened to that thing earlier today, and... Um, I was the one that was sending you the message because I, I was just really kind of shocked. And I, my thing with Dr. Watkins is I, he's, I think he's trying to find a, um, I don't know if the word is practical, but he's trying to find something that could be his call. You know, he, um, you know, every now and then, because I, I, I look at some of this stuff, you know, he is what you call a Facebook friend, so stuff comes up on my timeline. And, you know, I know he has one post. And, you know, these are my two favorite speakers, and it was Dr. West and uh, Minister Farrakhan. And, you know, I know he comes up with questions about President Obama. And sometimes, to be truthful, they're good questions, but they come off like he's complaining. And, and, and then even to listen to, to that, that clip, you know, because <laughs> I'm at work, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And um, so I listen to it, and what they got paid, when they start talking about my Fox news and I just cut it off because I don't want to be here anymore. And um, it just seemed like he just soft-pedaled her. You know, he did it just like the gentleman said um, that, you know, he was the one that just spoke to you and said that he was a little bit disappointed with Dr. Walker. And I mean, just, uh, I mean, he handled her, you know, with very soft gloves. I do think he was right when he said what he said about Fox. Um, I didn't know, but at one time he, um, in, in the, the interview, he did, I mean, in the you know, conversation between him and that lady, that he did say that he used to be a regular on Fox. And then he said things, I guess, just got so bad that he left. And, and he, he said one time his sister called him and told us the man, and they were just really, you know, cutting you to pieces on Fox. You know, so I, you know, and I didn't know, I didn't know he had been a, uh, you know, one that would go over there regularly, I guess, to talk about black issues. But I just find him, to, to me, um, that he's trying to find like I said, a project or something to jump on. So, 
you know, it's like with this white lady, you know, he's going to treat her like kid gloves. As far as uh, Susan Patton is concerned, all my life, my biggest problem had been with white women. So then, you know, we, we get to talk, and I'm glad to see Morris coming out, say, if you want to say it academia, about the role of white women. But I remember when I was much younger and you started out in the work world and just the thing, and it, it was just, all, they were, it was just always my problem. So when I look at her, and I understand just like what you said the night after you interviewed her, that, you know, she, she would be the type of white woman that, that could go among black people, and you have black people, oh, yeah, this, you know, she's really cool, da 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 And, you know, she would say things, I mean, just very racist things, that would go over a lot of black people's heads. You know, she's a, she's a red long fox. She said that herself, so that right there speaks volumes in itself, seeing that we know how Fox is. And then somebody just said they got, what, a 1% black viewership. You know, so, I mean, she's a regular there. To me, that, that speaks volumes. And um, so I, you know, I, it is what it is. As far as your guest tonight, um, I do agree with the gentleman that just spoke to me. She seemed to be very giddy. I remember um, some of the low stuff when she was, you know, her lowering of her voice about my parents are still alive, you know, and um, and I remember she went ahead and she said, I, one of your callers asked her about why would she adopt, you know, a, a non-white child, and she said something about she's going to go ahead and deal with the racial issue in her family. And of course, I was looking at something on TV, so I didn't get to hear that. So I had to listen at the law when I listened to the program in the archive. But I did find her to be very giddy, and I think the thing that just really kind of like threw me off was when she said she didn't know nothing about Chris Kyle. And I, I was sitting up there listening, I said, that is just a lie from the pit of hell. That is just a lie. And, and the very same thing you said, Gus, you work, you write for the New York Times, and you not, know nothing about Chris Kyle. You know nothing about this movie, The American Sniper, with all the, the, the foolishness that went on on the release date because it was released at Christmas time. But we know what Sony did to get the interview to override that, but now that movie is making all kinds of money. So when she said that, I was really kind of through it, I said, because I'm just not believing it. I, I'm just like, I just cannot believe she knows nothing about Chris Powell. And I, I don't think she was being honest with that at all. Um, that's all I have to say. Thanks. Uh. Anybody else? I had notes I took as well, but if there are other folks who uh, had comments, feel free. If we, anybody who hasn't shared yet. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, Thomas Smith again. Um, yeah, I think that um, she, like I said before, she's a typical New York refined racist. If they don't get their way, that's the end of the conversation. If he um, would have come at her the way you did, per se, or the way that the, 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 the callers did, she wouldn't be on that show too often. So he has to sort of, you have to sort of deal with them a certain way. And, and on top of that, she's a, a Jew, a white Jew, and they have a way of playing the victim, uh, especially the women. And I think if he would have really come, if he, you know, you can't, they're not going to take too many gusty vinegars, you know, like it, it, I know she got off the phone and out of her mouth said that nigger. I mean, I could just hear it. I mean, it's, they're not used to being dealt with that way. Um, 
white women, especially from New York, they used to have in their way, especially when dealing with black men, because they're usually in a position of authority over them, either um, through a work relationship or whatever, they're your boss or whatever. It's pretty much what they say goes, and then they, they don't get a lot of pushback from black people often, and that that's that's why you have to deal with her in a certain way. But what I like that he was saying was, you know, he was kind of telling her that, you know, like, hey, everyone ain't going to talk to you in a nice way. You know, I mean, it, it is what it is. I, that's what I got from a, a little bit of the conversation that, that, that um, he was trying to kind of coddle that to her, you know, say it to her in a nice way where it didn't, because if he would have just came off and said, you know, hey, ain't really going to talk to you that way, she would have been offended and played the victim there. And um, dealing with white women in that position and in, 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 in from that area is very difficult. It's very difficult. Um, um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I thought what I got from what she said at the beginning was, his name was Gus Vinegade. I mean, <laughs> it sort of made you sound like you were a rapper or something. You know, it was like she was trying to emphasize that part. He's a renegade. He's a, he's a bad guy, you know. Um, I, that's what I took from it. Um, that's all I have to say. Uh, the, uh, if you have comments you want to get in, feel free. you can dial the number 760-569-7676 and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Get your hand up. Again, press star six. And then the number one. And I'll see your hand. We'll get you on the line. Uh, The quote that I thought was important, even though she's quoting this from a different writer, but she included it and, you know, verified. She stood her ground on the person she quoted. Uh, Miss Zach said something else that struck me whenever an unarmed black man is shot by a police officer and the black community protests whites in the area buy more guns. Very important playing the victim. I thought was just said, um, the notes that I took and even before I get to the notes, um, (laughs) I, I snickered because when I think of, Susan Patton, the Princeton mom, I think of my name, Gus T. Renegade. And the reason I was going to bring this up with her, but um, I didn't want to be dilly-dallying. Woodrow Wilson, he showed a screening of Birth of a Nation in the White House. uh, And he said, this is like a quote, when you learn about this film, like in in class and such, they'll, they'll make sure to point this out. That He said it was like history written with lightning. That's him talking about the film Birth of a Nation uh, based on the book The Klansman featuring Gus the Renegade. That's <laughs> one of the characters in this film uh, that glorifies the Klan. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was also, he was president of the United States. He was also president of Princeton, alma mater of Susan Patton. I was going to bring that up that it's, no, in my view, no surprise, um, you know that you would produce Princeton would produce individuals like Susan Patton. No surprise at all. Uh, the notes that I took on the clip, uh, Dr. Boyce, he said what he said, VGQ <laughs> right on. Um, 
I, when she started off and she said she was on another uh, radio program and she said, uh, Dr. Boyce, uh, I was cheating on you. And oh. he kind of laughed about it. <laughs> when I say pay attention to the metaphors that whites use. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's how you come out of the gates. Okay. She said, uh, after she says this, Dr. Boyce, you, you know, I was cheating on you. Uh, she says, I knew you'd be big about it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you've already got the sexual metaphor. So right on. Anyway, she said, <laughs> I mean, you talk about sensationalism. She said she was lambasting. <laughs> like, really? Really? Like, uh, and no, she said name calling. I mean, people know I say that all the time. No name calling. Uh, just <laughs> be honest. <laughs> if anything, tell the truth. Uh, there was no yelling. People, like, she made it seem like we yelled at her and talked over her and all that. That was not the case at all. Uh, not, not that that even needs to be moving forward. Um, she left. She said she would be willing to come back. <laughs> I said that. I mean, that's that is a matter of record. I asked her about Bill Cosby and I told her that her point I thought was lucid. What she had to say about him. She said she enjoyed it. Vigorous dialogue. She'd be glad to come back. Um, <laughs> she. Uh, she said that uh, mad, I mean, really mad as hell? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't, I mean, black people have every right to be angry about racism, but if you listen to that program, uh, I don't think Gus T. Renegade sounds mad as hell uh, in the tone that I took uh, in speaking with her. Uh, and you can listen to the callers as well. Um, he said, um, he was saying that I like talking to you because uh, we don't have to agree on everything. And he said, you know, there, there are times where you're not going to convince me. I think she's lying and you're not going to convince me. And I was like, huh? Like it, it just, I mean, for him to say that, I was like, wow. So are there times when you think she is lying? Like, and do you tell her that? Like, I don't, I don't know if that's how he meant it. Like if he just meant that you're not telling the truth, meaning, uh, you might believe what you're saying, but I don't think that that's accurate, right? Maybe he meant it that way. Uh, or he could have meant, I think sometimes she's trying to deceive me. Uh, and I, I know that she's being dishonest with me right now. And you're not going to convince me otherwise. I don't know if he meant it like that, but he did say that. He said uh, those times you're not going to convince me. Uh, I think she's lying and you're not going to change my mind. Um, the suspicion. Yeah, I thought that was because our white guest on the program said that tonight it would be logical for black people to be suspicious uh, of whites that she brought that up specifically about having suspicion of whites and that being uh, incorrect. Racism is war, very important, uh, consistently, and that that was a major point for us. The terrorism thing, whites try to minimize what racism, white supremacy is. That it's war, and just try and act like you know this is you know something small scale, just a little tiff, little momentary dust up. And and I mean this is war worldwide. Uh, she said we were nuts. <laughs> I thought that was uh, significant as well. We we started with the sexual thing and, you know, a lot of the attention on Marshawn Lynch right now. Um, yeah, the way he said it specifically, you're never going to convince me that you're telling the truth. He said that specifically in talking about her, which made me think um, that, you know, there might have been some times when he felt like she was trying to deceive him. The word fair, 
came up as uh, at some points as well, I thought was significant, uh, as well as with Miss uh, Delantonia this evening. She, uh, I think when the listeners were asking about what it means to be white, uh, and she was saying, you know, do I need a definition for human and all that? She used the term fair at some important points as well. Uh, did I miss anybody? Anybody uh, didn't get an opportunity to share? Who had a hand up? Grand. I'll assume we did not uh, did not miss anyone. Um, I didn't know what was going to be said in the uh, Watkins clips. I didn't know if I was going to need like to get a bad taste out of my mouth or uh, anything else. I appreciate that folks didn't uh, BGQ. You know, focus on the white person. Um, but I had uh, a sound clip from uh, the seven times Mr. Fuller was on the program. I know people, some people have had difficulty tracking uh, that broadcast down where he had some <laughs> interesting things to say. Uh, I was going to play a little of that. And then if folks, if you have anything else, just whatever that you want to bring up that you saw news, something happened, whatever that you want to discuss, we should have time for that as well. But this is from uh, the infamous seventh visit of uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. This is from uh, Bot. Four years ago, January of 2011, uh, from this broadcast, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr., the cows. So, you know, that's, that, uh, you know, we have to learn to be codified. I mean, staying focused. See what I mean? That's what that means. Staying focused. Not be just hopping all over the place. Do the same thing the same way every time. That's what codification is. Say the same thing over and over again. And always know the reason why you're doing something. Somebody invites me to a party, I say, what for? Now, I'm going to give you kind of a vulgar illustration of what I meant. Some years ago, I was down in a meeting that was supposed to be about black people, Student National Medical Association, helping the black students get through medical school. That's what it was about. Uh, it was uh, sponsored by the pharmaceutical, a number of pharmaceutical companies. I did know that. So they had, you know, lots of money to spend on it. And uh was down in New Orleans. We were down on Canal Street and whatnot in a big hotel and whatnot. The thing's going to last about a week. So I noticed that a lot of time was spent. People was down there in, you know, the ballroom area, just kind of gliding around all dressed up and walking around with Champagne glasses and all the rest of it, okay? So I'm just looking at people and whatnot. I said, now, what are we here for? That's what I'm asking myself. Here to come up with formulas and whatnot, codification, really, for how we're going to get black students into med school and and get them completed, you know, and get them funded, all this stuff. That's what all this is about. This is the purpose for being here. But what I'm looking at is a lot of people having what they call a good time. See what I mean? But that's not what has been announced. Okay? See, I don't have anything against that. But see, do what you do what you say you're there for. Okay? So, some black guy, we were about three of us standing there talking. We standing there talking in the lobby. See, and I was trying to find the lady who had brought me down there and so that I could ask her when would I going to get another talk because I would made about a 30-minute talk and that had been the day before 
and it looked like I was going to be down the rest of the week, and I wasn't going to get another chance to talk. Because, see, I'm all business when I'm on these, you know. So, and that was years ago. Okay. Now, so one guy came up, and he, he we were just standing there looking at the people. I mean, just gliding across, the, you know, the room and whatnot, chandeliers and all that. And uh, the guy said, there was about three of us standing there talking. So one guy, he might have been a little tipsy. I mean, he said, you know, man, there's some fine bitches around here, man. I'm some fine broads. Say, man, I'm looking at them, man. I'm going to get me one of them and take them up in my room, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm going to fuck one of these ones, you know. And he was just talking, so he was just standing there kind of listening to him. So finally he drifted off. And the guy standing there talking to me because we had been talking about the racial thing and all like that. And so he kind of hesitated and didn't say nothing. And I didn't say nothing. We kind of stood there for a moment because the guy had drifted off. Now he's gone on off, mm-hmm. I guess, trying to chase one of them women he was talking about. So the fellow who was standing there said, you know what? He said, that's the only motherfucker that knows who he's, what he's here for. <laughs> <laughs> People gliding around here, I mean, profiling and whatnot. He ain't got no idea what they're here for. <laughs> See, now, he's half tipsy, but he know what he's here for. See, he ain't shamming. <laughs> you know? He's considering all the rest of this profiling as a bunch of nonsense. Mm-hmm. He's going to get him one of them women, and he's heading for the hotel room upstairs on the elevator <laughs> as soon as he possibly can. <laughs> wow. See, everybody else is walking around here acting like they're doing something. A whole week of acting. <laughs> Trying to solve black people's problems. <laughs> Say, no, man, they ain't here to solve nothing. I'm going I'm to get me a woman and get up here in that bed and lock the door. And that bell rang with me instantly because I, I knew that he was telling it like it was. <laughs> That's the only MF here that know what he's here for. <laughs> so, now, that's not exactly the truth because that wasn't what I was there for, but I mean, you know, but I got the point. Right. Yeah. See, and it's a lot of that that has been going on down through the decades. Now, like I say, now, I ain't got nothing against, you know people relaxing and all like that but i'm saying make it clear what you're doing you know codification is about clarity man and uh, i was speaking about it this morning to somebody and that is one thing i don't never want to hear again and that is having a three-day convention or something where hordes of people come in by the plane road load and sit down and discuss some agenda that's supposed to be about racial matters, sometime going all the way to South Africa or some place to do it. And then at the end of every meeting and everybody giving their opinion and everybody profiling and whatnot or whatever you want to call it, what you come up with is one cliche statement. We got to hold our leaders accountable. 
I never want to hear that again in life. Because I have repeatedly seen that. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and all kinds of work and midnight effort put forth just to come up with that one statement. Well, after we have done all our research and we have had Dr. So-and-so speak and we have had attorney so-and-so and we have had professor so-and-so and we have had this and we have had that and we have had Reverend, 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 Reverend saying this and that, all you can come up with is hold your leaders accountable? Is this what all of this five-day convention was for? That when you made your summary remarks, went passing the mic down the table, hold the leaders accountable. You could have done that without having no kind of meeting. And I don't ever want to hear that remark ever made again by anybody. Been there, done that a zillion times. And even if you ask a question, hold them accountable by doing what? Nobody has an answer. That's another thing I notice. Well, hold them accountable. You know what it means. It means get on them. You know? I mean, you know. You know, I mean, get take our people where we're supposed to be. Cliche, cliche after cliche after cliche. No specific codification at all. Hold them accountable. Hold them by the neck. What are you talking about? And then finally somebody might timidly say, well, vote them out of office. Well, that's what you did last convention. (laughs) So you voted them out of office. They're gone. Now you got another bunch, and you say, hold them accountable. Hold them accountable by doing what? Voting them out of office. And and most of the time, they won't even get that far. They won't say what hold them accountable means. They just say, hold them accountable. And everybody just nods in unison. Yeah, we got to hold them accountable. And then they go out and get in the stretch limousines and whatnot. Yeah, we got to hold them accountable. And we're going to come back next year and say the same thing. Hold them accountable. I don't ever want to hear that remark ever again out of anybody's mouth, period. And I'm not going to a meeting where that's the summation is going to be. Hold them accountable. I'm going to say, y'all can say that before you even have the meeting. You don't need to, you know, have no great big buffet dinners and all like that to just say, well, we came to the conclusion that you know, the solution to black people's problems, we got to hold our leaders accountable. Is that all you got? Is that all that all of this talk was about? Year after year? Hold them accountable. Hold them by the big toe, you know. When did you uh, see, you know, start, just start seeing this pattern of, you know, this happening consistently when black people would get together? Because uh, I would be on the podium many a times myself, and I'm saying, hey, I'm talking about codification for each person in this room and everywhere on the planet. <clears throat> you are the leader. That's the thing that I kept saying. 
There's no such thing as a black leader in the system of white supremacy. You have black spokesperson. What is a black spokesperson? It's a person that speaks. So every time you speak, you are the spokesperson. If you're black, that's what a black spokesperson is. And there's no such thing as a black leader. All of the leaders of black people on this planet are white. If you're reasonably sober at all, you can recognize that. Oh, our black leaders are accountable. You don't have any black leaders. There's no such thing as that. These are spokespersons, meaning they give opinions about what they think ought to be done. I'm not knocking it, but that's what you do every day. Give your opinion about what ought to be done. So every black person that speaks is a black spokesperson. And there's no such thing as a black leader. All of the leaders of black people in the system of white supremacy are white. Now, what's, what, what is a, a leader? A leader is a person that when they do something or when they say that something's going to be done, it gets done because ain't nobody going to oppose it. That's what a leader is. So all the leaders for black people are white. See, white people make decisions in the system of white supremacy. Black people make suggestions. See, when I speak, I make suggestions. My whole book is a book of suggestions about what black people should do or can do. That's what it is. No such thing as a black leader. A leader has power. I mean, when a leader steps up on the scene, I mean, like a Roman emperor and whatnot, and say, hey, you know, this is it. This is what's going to be done. Our heads are going to roll. And, it, and I don't have to consult nobody. I'm Julius Caesar. End of story. If everybody in the parliament going to have their head chopped off in the Coliseum tomorrow, you could, you, you know, just be on time. Because it's going to happen. <laughs> Context of white supremacy. Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Folks uh, need a book. ProduceJustice.com. You get the word guide, code book. You can get a discount if you get them at the same time. ProduceJustice.com. Com. Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, that was actually five years ago <laughs> to uh, think while I was listening five years ago. But uh, yeah, I think the listener had said he was bringing that question up yesterday, which reminded me of Mr. Fuller has addressed that. He's addressed many of these topics that we talk about uh, in his visits uh, on this program and many others, talk team as well. Uh, I think he has got out a lot uh, about things he's observed, patterns he's seen through the years. Uh, do folks have any uh, comments? I think everybody everybody who had a hand up, your line should be open. Anything you want to get in? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, just wanted to announce, I just read that uh, McDonald's first ever black CEO was just fired slash forced to retire uh, he had only been um, in that title for two years, and uh, McDonald's 
Um, stock had gone down a lot under his so-called tenure. Uh, you saw a lot of protest uh, with uh, workers protesting over low wages and, and all of this against McDonald's like never before. And um, it also says in the article I was reading that um, news of his, of his firing, uh, at the news of his firing, McDonald's uh, stock soared. That was the word that was used, soared. So it just it kind of reminded me of, you know, President Obama and just trying to make him look bad. Like McDonald's was having its worst time in history under this first black CEO. That's all I wanted to say. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, the from my from my uh, uh, exchange with uh, other victims of racism, uh, white supremacy, whether they agree with that or realize that they are victims or not, uh, when the subject comes up about racism, which it, it does happen often. Uh, and it gets around to uh, the possible solutions. What I always, what in my in my brain computer, I always it always computes that what I'm hearing from the other victims is uh, a, a, some sort of grandiose type of thing is going to happen. Uh, and I and I and I make this imagining in my my mind that. Too many of us are thinking that it's going to be some kind of large uh, unit of people moving somewhere, and but they're wearing the same uniform or something like that. But one of the most essential things from my many years of, of, of studying Mr. Fuller's work is the main point is codification, codification. And, and to make it even more in context, counter-racist codification. And that is something that an individual can apply into their life. And what I've been experiencing personally is that once you make that, make that choice, make that, that movement, it actually goes from goes from what you're reading or what you're what you're studying within yourself about how to how to say things better, how to say the most razor sharp thing to whatever whatever uh, subject matter you come in contact with, how to do things in the most razor sharp way uh, and manner, and consciously think of think of that as what is the best possible thing I could be saying and doing. It's going. It's it's going to affect your daily life, and that actually, in other words, the the the, the answer is right there in front of you. Is what, I'm, what what the way I'm thinking. The answer is right there. In, it's right there in front of you. It's right there within your within your your body itself. Where the and collectively, ultimately, collectively, that's that's the answer to the system of racial white supremacy. 
because the system of racism and white supremacy and the white people who who uh, practice racism, white supremacy, and we have to assume that it has to be a whole lot of white people who are practicing racism, uh, white supremacy. They are, they are razor sharp in their codification. So therefore, it's going to determine that it has to be a razor sharp countering effect that uh, it's going to neutralize, neutralize this problem. And that's what I that's what I learned from from Mr. Fuller. That's what I've learned from Mr. Fuller as far as that concerned. I've heard a, a whole lot of other things beforehand, before before I, I met him and met his information, his quote unquote, as he said, suggestion. But his is the most <laughs> the most clearest the most clearest uh, answer that I can think of, unless somebody could tell me something different. And that's that's what I that's what I gathered from that uh, from that archive, and I mean it, it, that's 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 basically him and him and him and him in, in essence right there. It's you know counter racist codification. That's that's your answer. As far as all this you know grandiose, a lot of times I actually hear, and uh, that's basically what I you know. Have to say, I wanted to say it. I think a couple of days ago, when program, but I just didn't get a chance to think about it at the time. But the uh, the archive that you played kind of like brought it back to a memory to be, to say that say what I just got to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, any. Anything else folks wanted to get in? Uh, we had a few minutes before we wrap things up. Anything else? Um, Gus, quick question. Um, uh, I, I had noticed a, uh, a pattern. I guess it's um, like uh, in the responses, I guess, to a certain question about whether or not uh, one of the white guests are racist. I don't know exactly how the question is asked. I guess it's asked like, um, have you ever been accused of being a racist or uh, do you think you're racist? But like the response will be, it will usually um, contain like a, well, I, I hope or I hope not or they usually use that word, I hope not, almost like they aren't sure. Or they're trying to confuse us or something. Do you, you like? Do you pick up on that, or they usually use that response? Uh, I recall I've heard that uh, more than once. I think she said that today. But yeah, that uh, I hope not. <laughs> like, uh, oh my goodness! I, you know, that would be the worst thing in the world. I mean, my gosh, it's that white innocence. Like, certainly, if I did it, I just. I didn't know that I did it. I, I was ignorant. I just wasn't aware that uh, they get rich. I think she brought that up, the implicit bias, uh, bias test. Um, I think they just gave a, a genius grant to uh, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a black female uh, at Stanford. Um, but her work posits that white people have lots and lots of unconscious bias. Uh, and I think white people, like I guess, are very... Uh, they're very happy to talk about it in those terms. And I think what that response of, I hope not, 
gee, I, I sure hope not, is the same sort of thing. Like if if it did happen, I didn't know. And yeah, you know, I'm I'm totally innocent. That would be the worst thing ever if, if that has been the case. But yeah, I think I've I've heard that uh, from several of the white guests, particularly white women, I think. Yes, and uh, just to add one last thing, uh, it was, it, she seemed very, like, um, very aggressive in her, her tone when she was talking, uh, talking to um, uh, Dr. Uh, Boyce Watkins about the, uh, I guess, the grievance group or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she mentioned um, black people and I guess, I guess, uh, maybe what, feminists? But for specific like for some reason, when it came to white people, she was just like, you know, that use the term dedicated. That that is dedication. Like the, the tone, like how she was talking, you know. And and I give props to um, Dr. Watkins for bringing that up. Like, of course she wouldn't. You know, that's a part of the game. I don't know if he used that word, but you know, that's how you know that's how it's supposed to be. You know, it's like. In my opinion, I think he was saying, like, you know, you're being a white person, you know. <laughs> you're supposed to defend it. You're supposed to defend the um, white propaganda machine, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I would uh, just uh, one more time for uh, emphasis. I think uh, Dr. Curry talked about this. I think he said one of his grad students who was a guest uh, on our program uh, in the autumn of 2014, where he was talking about the white affinity for guns. And these were young white people going out to the target range, just like the police department that just found out that they were using photos of black people as target practice, that these uh, white college students in their 20s, that they were doing the same thing. They were going to target practice and getting an image uh, of a hoodie. Trayvon Martin or uh, something to signify that this is a black person and just making it very explicit what they were engaged in white terrorism. Uh, but the quote, <clears throat> and this is in her uh, KJ Delantonia, her report, American kids learning to aim and fire where she's got a photograph of her white child uh, learning to fire a gun at like age 10, maybe younger. She's uh, quoting another individual, Miss Zach, said something else that struck me whenever an unarmed black man is shot by a police officer and the black community protests whites in the area buy more guns should be repeated many many times which also suggests systemic organized conscious behavior uh dr welsing moment as well uh which leads me to what i was going to say dr welsing should be here on um, Sunday, uh, live with the kickoff for the Super Bowl. Um, American Sniper um, should be addressed in some way because I think it's so important. And I was thinking, uh, since we are um, doing the book tomorrow, American Sniper, session number six, we're almost done. Um, we've referenced her so many times throughout the book and, and things that we've talked about. Uh, if you were going to ask Dr. Welsing a question, uh, if you had, if there was one specific passage in the book that you'd point out and say, man, Dr. Welsing, what, what do you think about this? What does this reveal about the system of white supremacy? Uh, let's, we can share that tomorrow and then we can see maybe if we can pick one uh, or two to share with her on Sunday uh, when she visits the program. 
Uh, I definitely know <laughs> one that uh, I should have included uh, from last week. I'll just share it tomorrow, but I was really uh, disgruntled that I hadn't uh, recognized and announced the significance. It was something from last week's study session, but that'll be tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Even Bill Maher, there was some controversy. He referenced uh, Chris Kyle as a uh, psychopathic patriot uh, on his program, on his show last week. And uh, they had that on CNN and some white people were not pleased with him about uh, about saying that. But yeah, it's it's and Rania Kalik, the non-white female uh, who was getting rape and death threats because of her postings online about the racism in this film and book. Uh, and, you know, what this means, what this symbolizes for all of these legions of white people. I think they announced that this is the record setting movie for the month of January, um, what that represents. But uh, and even even her commentary, I thought uh, Miss Del Antonio, when she said just something about the nature of it being a fun activity to go out and fire guns, like there's something perverse about that. And I was that American sniper. That's what I had in my head the whole time. American sniper like this is what. White people kill for fun. White people kill for fun. And for emphasis, white people kill black people for fun. Think of your question uh, or portion from the book for uh, Dr. Welsing on Sunday. We'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. American Sniper, session number six. Compensatory call in this weekend. Workplace racism. We'll catch up on uh, news and tidbits from the last seven days. Uh, if you get confused, have a question, grievance <laughs> that you want to get in, you can drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. Until justice at gmail.com. On Twitter, at until justice. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio paypal is in the top right corner if you're not on paypal you can drop me an email Uh, we can secure a mailing address for you huge thanks to all the folks who have invested through the years uh, kept us on the program hope the broadcast remains worthy of your time and energy uh remain patient with other black people definitely <laughs> remain sober remain sober man uh one of the, i know people are doing you know super bowl parties this weekend and whatever uh under conditions of white terrorism you do not want to make that mistake of being intoxicated behind the wheel you just don't want to have contact with a white person when you are not thinking clearly that you're dealing with an enemy your life could be over or you could have just huge and unnecessary problems. Sobriety, best codified choice we can make. If you can't do that, stay at home. Don't drive. That being said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to maximize black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we have contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy signing out. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. 
the man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.